0: We got something a little bit cool and different this week. We wanted to reveal our secret $50 tipper, who is none other than Boston Marathon champion Des Linden. I didn't tell the rest of the team Des was coming on. We thought she was just going to come congratulate John for his great work, and she stayed for 56 minutes. She talks about her career, the Olympic Marathon trials. It's pretty great. Then after that, we got the regular show. Ronus Kiprudo, a world record. Galen rubb has got a new coach. Wilson Kipsing, former world record holder in the marathon, has got some troubles with the drug authorities. Mary Kane is back. Clayton Murphy's got a new coach. Hundreds of new shoe reviews have poured in this month. You can give yours or check them all out. Let's run.com slash shoes. Track and field. We got a lot of it in January. Now. Welcome everyone to a special edition of the Let's Run.com track talk podcast where we reveal and are joined right now by the $50 tipper to Let's Run.com's Jonathan Galt. This person is a world marathon major champion and we're proud to reveal on the air it is Dez Linden. Welcome to the program.
1: You gave away the amount I was hoping to just kind of tease away that it was like $500 and try to get people to match. So I'm sorry, Jonathan, but something's better than nothing. And I'm excited to be on the show. So thanks for having me.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm grateful for anything. And Weldon lost his mind when he saw the email address associated with the, with the donation. But I'm, I'm very appreciative of the funds you contributed towards my, my tip job.
0: Yeah. And for any non-regular listeners, at the end of the year, we said that we would match any tips up to $5,000 for Jonathan Galt. Des, I, I I figured out a kink in the system though. The maximum tip is 50. So I assume you wanted to give the 5,000 to John himself. <laughs> so we apologize to John. Des? we saved you a little bit of money. Thank you. John, you're the pure journalist. I mean, can you accept this money?
2: <laughs> uh, that's what I said. I messaged Dez afterwards. I was like, you know, I really appreciate it, but you know, journalistically is, is this okay for me to do? But I feel like people pay like professional runners and athletes pay for newspaper subscriptions, or at least I hope there's a couple of professional athletes who pay for newspapers at this point. So I feel like if that's something that, if that's how Des wants to spend her money, who am I to say no?
3: Now, Des, I'm, I'm curious how you knew about the tip jar. Are you a regular listener to the podcast? What, what, how did you know about it?
1: I've been listening to it for a little while. So, um, it was kind of funny, the close of the the year, you guys were joking about it, and your tip jar, we're going to announce how much is in it, Sam and Jonathan just laughed it off, and I thought it would, it would be a good idea to put something in there, because it would suck to have an empty tip jar. Uh, but you guys did about 50 episodes last year, is that correct?
2: Yeah, I think one every week, apart from like the first two weeks of the year.
1: So as someone who consumes a lot of the content, it's like a dollar an episode, that's that's a great deal. I was super entertained by it, too, so...
3: Easy money. Good to hear, folks. We have a female listener. She doesn't just hate – she doesn't not just not hate us. She actually likes the show.
0: Des, I saw Jonathan just take a swig from a Rio Olympic Cup, and we got the Tokyo Olympics coming up. Where are you right now? I don't even know, like, where are you training? Like Physically, I don't even know where you are.
1: Yeah, so I just came down – well, I just came out from Michigan to uh, Tempe, Arizona, and it's super busy down here. A lot of professional athletes running – out this way. What are we about seven weeks out now? So physically I'm tired and beat up and really just getting to the heart of the training. So, uh, it's, it's tricky leaving Michigan in January, December, January, you're doing your training. You go out for a 20 mile long run. It can take two and a half hours. You're driving home and there's cars in the ditch from sliding on ice and stuff. And, um, you just have to hope that it's meaningful but now getting down here, you can start seeing paces and going, okay, everything's kind of coming together. So it's a good spot to be in, but there's still certainly work to do.
2: So who else is in town in Tempe? And I know like Molly Huddle sometimes trains there and Emily Sisson.
1: Yeah, um, those guys are here. I've seen Kyle Merber out, um, Amanda Eccleston I saw yesterday, uh, allegedly the former – NOP group that was with Pete Julian has been out at the ASU track. Um, so it, I'm, I've been here about four or five days and you just kind of bump into um, your room. So I'm just in the beginning of it.
3: For those of you not familiar with the geography of the United States, Tempe is in Arizona, but it is not at altitude. It's at 350 meters of altitude. So um, do you ever, I mean, does altitude ever play a role for you or? Yeah,
1: I uh, I went to, Kenya, I eat tan a couple times, times, um, I think maybe 15 and 17, maybe it was 16. It's hard. I've been doing this for a long time, but back a while ago, I was going to eat tan. And that's actually honestly the best place in the world to train at altitude right now. Um, perfect weather, great conditions, people to run with. And then obviously Kenya has, you know, some trouble with doping. So it seemed like a place to kind of steer away from for a while, um, at least until I'm done professionally running. And so I went to Mammoth once um, and just wasn't really getting the return personally. I, I didn't want to spend a ton of time there. And I do like to see paces play out and kind of build confidence from seeing numbers on the watch. And so I uh, stopped going. And it's just an extra uh, layer of fatigue, an extra stressor that um, wasn't really fitting into my overall training anymore.
0: Yeah, and you went to college in Arizona State, so it's, I'm sure it's very familiar being in Tempe. Do you still have friends there? Is is that good to have friends around or do you like to sort of hole up and not see people when you're in an intensive training block?
1: Yeah, it's a nice um, blend. I, I, there's plenty of people to bump into and hang out with socially and on the running side and then friends from college. But I'm actually in a garage apartment, like over the garage, this little setup at um, a friend from college, their neighbor's house. And so it's like right by campus. Um, it, I know the routes and everything from here. So it's pretty familiar and comfortable. But um, if there's like this older couple that they'll have me over for dinner in a couple of days and they like want to treat me like their kid. So uh, it's it's really pretty comforting um, when I'm away from home for you know the next couple of months.
2: So Des, this is going to be your fourth trials and you're trying to make your third Olympic team. Mentally, is it still as demanding? Do you worry as much anymore? Or is this just gravy for you in this buildup?
1: Yeah. I mean, I know I'm going to go in to Atlanta and want to make the team and like, just as a competitor, I still have that. Like, I hate getting beat by people and particularly people that shouldn't be. You're like, no way I'll rip my heart out and need it before this person passes me. Like I still have that. Um, but I'm, I'm way more comfortable in marathon segments and cycles. Like, I don't feel like I need to prove something every day or prove that I'm fit or prove that I'm a contender. Like I think a lot of people went out um, and ran flat, fast courses. So you could have that time to say, Oh, I'm in the conversation. Um, you know, I think I got more value from going to a New York or a Boston and and just competing and doing that. And so, um, yeah, no, I'm still, I'm still excited about it, but I think I'm a little, a lot more relaxed in my mentality. And in, in fact, seven weeks out, I'm like, yeah, plenty of time, um, and I need to kind of get on that because it's not really that much time.
2: <laughs> yeah. Is there one person above all who you really don't want to lose to or don't like losing to in the past?
1: Um, I, I can't. I mean, I go way back to college and I think of Teresa McWalters. Like she was like the bar where was, like, I can have a bad day, but if she passes me, like I can turn it on and just be a little bit better. And um, I don't really have that person – now, because probably because the, the cast has changed so much around me because I've been at it for so long. Um, but, like, very specifically, like when Teresa McWalters would pass me in cross country with her Stanford uniform, I'd be like, oh, hell no, not today.
2: <laughs> and why, why was that? What was it about her?
1: She was good. And then, like, I just thought I was a little bit better. And she actually went on to, I think she placed really well. At the NCAA 5K, like after I graduated. And I was like, man, I would have been fourth place because she was fifth or something like that. <laughs> it was just like the bar. And we would always battle, but you never wanted to lose it in the end.
2: Yeah, I feel like everyone has that in college because I, I used to run against Robert's Cornell teams and there was this kid, Brett Kelly. And it seemed like we would always be finishing like right next to each other. And you just, yeah, if you saw it was that guy, you'd just be like, screw this. I can't, you know, you'd, you'd have an ex- extra little pop in your step the last hundred. So I, I feel like that's, I can relate to you in that aspect that we're probably running relatively, you know, not, not as impressive times. I'm looking at McWalters. She was third in the NCAAs in 2005.
1: So I would have been runner up. obviously. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but in reality, what was your best track finish?
1: I think I was eighth or ninth.
3: You're not even sure if you scored a point.
1: I don't know. I think I was ninth, actually, because I think I was all American on a technicality in that an East African running for NCAA team beat me.
0: I mean, when you look back on your college career, now your pro career, it's sort of the dream people want to have. I mean, not many people win world marathon majors anyway, but the people I think we envision who win them are people more like Shalane, who were like NCAA champions and dominating. And you were really good in college, but you weren't the star. Like, what do you think was responsible for you getting so much better? Does that make you appreciate it a little bit more that you weren't this the best in high school, the best in college. And now I think pretty much everyone would trade their career for years almost.
1: Yeah, I think um, having the opportunity to even keep going after college was huge. Um, I think one thing that always gets forgotten is I, I never redshirted. So I just got thrown in, did four years and was done. Um, so doing a, a professional year was like, okay, well, if I had redshirted, this would be like my fifth year. And then just building that consistency. And obviously, I was with the Hansons who um, just do a lot of volume and it's kind of a grinder setup. And so, once I was really consistent in that program, I just started to see results. And um, like I had a lot of fun in college, I was a student athlete for sure. And ASU is a fantastic campus where you can be distracted quite often, but I think it kept it like exciting still. And then, once I went pro, I was like, okay, well, this is, I'm setting aside the real world to do this. So I better be all in, um, and just made me more consistent. And then again, going to the marathon you have that big block of work where every day kind of matters. And so that really just like compounded for me and started seeing results gradually and steadily. But, um, yeah, no, I think I've been super fortunate and had like the luck to be connected with the Hansons and with Brooks who kind of viewed long-term progress as the goal. Um, it wasn't as cutthroat as like, here's a reduction if you don't, Uh, do something spectacular right now. And so everything's been about development. And um, I think when you give people an opportunity over a long period of time, we can do pretty special things. But, you know, to go back to the the big tip, I air quote, big tip, it's like everything in this sport for me has been gravy. No one expected me to be competing still right now. and, And certainly, Uh, to be an Olympian or be a world marathon major. So anytime I can, you know, contribute and give back to the sport in a tiny little way, like I totally appreciate people covering covering it and talking about it and, um, you know, just making what we do interesting. So, you know, it's a $50 tip, but I'm happy to, um, support people who like track and field.
2: Did you think that when you started your, your journey with the Hanson's project that one day you could win Boston, was that like in the realm of possibility for you?
1: I thought about the Olympics a lot. Like I felt like there was no one in the marathon doing anything that was otherworldly, that was spectacular, particularly at that time. It was like Dina and then everyone else was like fair game. And so that seemed really realistic for me, even though the outside world was like no freaking way. Um, I thought, you know, I saw Brian sells progress, which again was super, lucky to have that kind of role model and the person who just put in the work for a long stretch of time and um so when I went to the 2008 Olympic trials I was like oh yeah I think I can make this team like this is wide open this is my spot for sure
0: and like your first contract with Brooks and the Hanson brothers is that just like a one-year deal and you have to prove something right away did you feel pressure or was just sort of I'm gonna see if I can make it as a professional runner this is a good setup let's see what happens
1: yeah, I mean it was just a really good setup and I think there's a lot of upside to it but there wasn't any kind of guarantee. So you're in a spot where you don't have to pay rent and like you have a job and like life's pretty cheap so you can you know take care of just running and then if you perform well then you start making money and then you know there was there's no downside. You're not losing money in that situation, but you could start to make some money out of it. And so um, you know, those first couple of years, you take everything you make and you just reinvest it back into your running. It's like better physio, better food, you know, like I'm going to get out of the track shack and go get an apartment or whatever it may be. Um, and then a couple years down the line, it started to be like real contracts where it's like, OK, this is like guaranteed base salary. You're not living going back to the parents' apartment after this if it doesn't work out. And so it all just kind of steadily Um, increased in the right direction but it took a lot of pressure off because there was no like if you have a bad year you're done
3: i'm curious you know looking at your career as a whole i guess you'll probably unless you win another one always be known as the 2018 boston marathon winner but i mean that race i don't want to call it a total fluke but a 239 winning time is probably not going to happen very often (laughs) Which marathon in your career are you most proud of? I mean, is it that race just because you won it and you were, or is it, you know, I mean, I, when I look back at, you know, objectively speaking to me, it, it seems to me like the 2011 Boston, when you were in the sprint for the finish, you ran 222 as an objectively better race. Like if in, in normal conditions, if you lined up the 2011 Des versus the 2018 Des, who would have won and which race are you more proud of?
1: Yeah, I think winning is always better. For sure. Like, breaking the Tape is freaking sweet. Um, but I, I love the 2011 race. I mean, I think that was like a day where no one would have put any money on me. They'd just been like, yeah, just another American runner. But I felt like I was ready to go. And it just like unfolded exactly how I had hoped, except for that last like 50 meters, you know? And then that was racing. Like, that was just really fun, exciting whether you're into the marathon or not, if you had turned on the TV and been watching Boston that day and and watched the last, you know, mile and a half, but you would have been like, Oh man, I have people to root for. This is exciting. Um, and I love that part about our sport. So to me, that was more fun. That was more exciting, um, all the way until like 50 meters to go. And then I would switch to 2018, just, you know, having that moment of breaking the tape is really cool too.
3: Speaking of which, John John got some flack for the races that he selected for our 64 race of the decade. John, did you include that race? It seems to me. Yeah. To- oh, you did? Huh?
2: It was a first round matchup. Oh, right. right. Dez's win in Boston against Shalane's win in New York. No, no, I'm talking about the 2011 Boston. Oh, 2011. That was, uh, I certainly was on my preliminary short list, but I don't think I included it uh, on the final list. But it was a great race.
3: I remember watching that. There was like a lot. I was, I, like, it was so unexpected. It was just like, it kind of remind me of that when Jerry Cavetti race, like back and forth and who's going to win. And I can only imagine if I was actually running the race, considering how vivid the memory is. And I was watching it on my computer screen. In, um, in
1: 2006, I volunteered at the Chicago Marathon. And it was like my first time really being at a major marathon. And I was at the finish line. It was pouring rain. It was... Um, Robert Chariot and Daniel Jenga racing in, I think it was a five second finish, like difference in the finish. It's pouring rain and they're coming in. I'm like, man, I'm watching this, like my first experience with the marathon. Like I I never want to be in a sprint finish in one of these. Like, first of all, it's raining. It's miserable. I would never want to be in a sprint finish. And then Robert Chariot gets to the line. He's, he finally breaks Jenga and he, his heel slips on the decal and he cracks his head. And that's the finishing photo. But like, in Boston in 2011, I remember being like, this is exactly what I didn't want to sign up for. And then in 2018, it was like, okay, don't slip on the finishing tapes. So it was a weird full circle thing, but it was just cool watching those exciting races and they like they stick in your memory and it's it's just fun.
0: There was an Instagram clip with Meb going to meet the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team with his kids yesterday. And he was talking about winning Boston and he's kind of said the same thing. He's like, at the very end, I'm thinking, just don't fall down. <laughs> I mean, I guess you pretty much know at that point when you've got the, a decent lead there, you've got it. Just don't fall down. So I think the fears we have in our head are crazy. Even you champions still have them. Like, I, I still can mess this up a little bit.
1: For sure. And we've both seen it, like, with Meb slipping in Rio, with, like, the, you know, you're coming in, you're tired, and he slips on a sticky tape on the, the bottom of the ground, like the last thing you need at mile 26.19.
2: So, Des, where... Where is your jacket? Where's all your stuff from that race? Because that jacket is now like iconic in American distance running. Where do you keep all that stuff?
1: Yeah, the jacket is with the BAA. And when I first ran Boston in 2007, uh, Jack Fleming and Gloria Radier are out there and they took us and showed us the BAA offices. And if you get a chance to go in there, it's really cool. It's just sports memorabilia everywhere. And I remember seeing... Maybe it was carry Goucher's shoes, that might've been too early, but it was just like all this cool stuff that you're like, Oh, like maybe one day I'll run so well that they'll want my shoes. Um, so it was a really cool thing to like, give that jacket back and be like, put it in your museum here. So that's where the jacket's at. And then everything else is kind of stuffed in a drawer somewhere.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Cause I actually, I have been to the BAA headquarters cause I live in Boston, but I'm not sure if it's like that stuff's open to the public or not, but I feel like they should bring it out, like, Marathon Week, say, like, you know, here's Meb's bib from the 2014 race and all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, they used to have the run base, which I don't think is there anymore. But, yeah, I mean, I think it would be a cool, just, like, put it somewhere for the weekend, the expo or whatever.
2: Does Brooks sell that thing, like, mass market it? Because if I were them, I would just be like, here's your dad's replica jacket from when she won Boston.
1: Yeah, that was actually kind of cool cuz they their apparel never sells. Like for shoe companies it's like, "Meh, it does all right." And they were like, "We actually saw instant results from a pro athlete wearing a thing and then the sales on the website and they sold out super quickly." Um and then they did another like version of it that also did pretty well, but now it's they've moved on.
2: <laughs> that well, that's always my big question when athletes sign like sponsorship contracts is like, "How much are they actually, you know, delivering return on investment and clearly in that case you know you you did
1: on the jacket
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) well the shoes were blacked out right so it's kind of hard to tell the logo on those exactly so
3: it wouldn't be a let's run podcast if i didn't go off on my vapor weekly vaporfly rant so while we're talking about equipment um i think last night Old let's run, friend Matt Lawton, who's now moved. He's moved from the Daily Mail. People used to make fun of him when he was at the Daily Mail a little bit, it's a little bit of a British tabloid. He's now moved over to the Times of London, and he has a piece that saying that the vapor flights may be. John, you have the specifics.
2: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because in the article he said that they may be imposing limitations on you know stack height or carbon fiber plate or something, essentially to stop. The, just I don't know to, to impose some limitation on shoes. And then he said on Twitter today that he didn't think it was going to be affecting the math, the shoes that are publicly available, the ones you can just buy, you know, Nike Vaporfly Next Percent from stores. It would be the custom ones by professional athletes. So I think we're still sort of unclear exactly what's going to happen at this point. Um, but Robert, did you have a, a question?
3: Well, I'm just wondering. I mean, obviously you have your sponsor and you're proud of them. They've done a great deal for you, but I think only someone with their sand in the head, their head in the sand would think that people haven't been running significantly faster in the marathon. All these American men that were running 212 to 214 are now suddenly running 209 to 212. Um, you know, I know they're not, some of these athletes aren't even wearing the vapor fly. Sarah Hall runs a huge PR. So it seems like shoe technology has changed a lot. What do you think of that? I mean, it's kind of changed like what is an acceptable fast time, do you do you worry about that, or do you just focus on getting yourself in shape?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And I was actually on Kara Goucher's Clean Collective podcast recently talking about it. Um, there's you have to play the game a little bit differently than ever before, and it's figuring out like how to use this tool that used to just be something you put on and forgot about. Like, well, what does this bring to the table? How can I train differently? How can I race differently? Um, Is there a different way to put fatigue into people's legs that they don't seem to be getting through a rhythm race? So there's a lot of questions around it, which is, you know, it's interesting and it's new, um, can be frustrating. But with the trials, I think on the women's side, we have enough sponsorship in that top group that it's not going to be Nike dominated. I think like the really good people, if Amy's ready, she's a factor no matter what. If Jordan's ready, she's a factor no matter what. Um, and so beyond that, there's not a ton of Nike people. The men's side's actually pretty wide open and I think it could be a a big factor there. Um, and then I've also heard kind of just rumblings that Nike's going to go with the newest shoe, the whatever Kipchoge wore, and just have those available for anybody who is running the trials, like get your free pair of shoes, running them, here they are. Um, so that could change things in, you know, I think it would be interesting. I was thinking about this the other day, like it'd be interesting if you could like crowdsource some prize money for the first, anybody who makes a team who isn't in the Nike shoe. So there's incentive to not be in that shoe if you think you're good enough to make it.
3: How does that work? Cause I know like I was watching the, the Japanese academic the college academic and, and I know it's not the same thing. Those runners don't have individual contracts, but I assume the schools have contracts, but they are 19 of the 21 starters all ran on the vapor fly, even if they were wearing Mizuno and Asics on a bib. like would that violate, you know, let's say Molly Huddle, if she wears those shoes, is it possible a shoe company would let them wear, let an athlete wear another shoe company's thing just temporarily? Or would that be a big no, no, or would it sort of depend on the, do you think on the individual case?
1: I think you'll see certain brands just black them out, you know, so like maybe the logo is not on there. Maybe they'll just black them out. Um, I think Brooks has made a really good shoe. Um, the one I've been running in and and testing out for a while, the final version I think is going to be great. And I think, I think I'm close enough that it won't be a factor, you know, like if, if three Nike people beat me, um, they're going to be really good anyways. And so I'm comfortable with that. Um, but I, I think you will see other brands uh, running in black
3: that's kind of my take i mean i, I think that the is out there the other companies are getting close enough to it that you know you, you saw a world record this weekend in the men's 10k on the roads and a non-nike shoe but so i'm not as worried about it going forward but i mean it does mess up sort of the times and the historical comparison but going back i'm still very bothered by what happened in 2016 i mean Kara goucher you know would she have made the Olympic team if these athletes didn't have these shoes that no one even knew existed really you know or all I know all all the medalists in the men's side but now I'm still claiming I think maybe all the medalists in the women's side in Rio also had them I still haven't quite confirmed that but it's
2: just kind of interesting but
3: enough shoe talk I I, I always try to they always try to get well then John don't let me go off too much on that
2: well wait there there was one thing that Des said though that I thought was kind of interesting I wanted to follow up on you mentioned that with the way that the shoes it's just sort of that they might uh an athlete might react differently or you might have to think about an athlete differently because they're wearing the shoes because of how their body responds to that is that something you actually think of during the marathon like i need to be aware of this person maybe being stronger in this portion of the race because they're in these shoes or do you just turn it off once the race has begun
1: it plays into the strategy a little bit and i mean i think Something I've noticed, and maybe it's just people getting better, but people are closing that last 10k faster than ever before. Like it used to be, like if you ran even pace, people would come back, and you could lose, you know, 30 to 40 seconds a mile in that last 10k, like pretty easily. Like that's where the marathon really started to happen, Um, and you you could experience it there. And that doesn't seem to be happening anymore. So how do you put that type of fatigue of a 26.2 mile race? that now kind of feels like a 22, 24 mile race, how do you make it extended out again? And so it's thinking about that differently in strategy and and maybe there's a way to do it and maybe it's just a a fool's errand, but I like to think that there's a chance still. Um, And you know, I think the gap is closing on the shoes as well too, from other brands.
3: So it sounds like you really like the full 26.2 mile race. A lot of people have speculated and you've even hinted at it. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll even like, if I like a twenty six two point two mile race, I might like a 50 mile race or, you know, that type of thing. How far off are we just to, to seeing you sort of in, you know, an ultra? I mean, I, I can only imagine what you would be doing in some of these ultras. I, th- I think you'd be doing quite well.
1: Yeah, I'm excited about it. I think it's just one of those things where you can't compare yourself to like, what you were at 26 to how you're doing now. And it starts getting depressing. Um, it'll all be new and exciting. And so I, I'm looking forward to that and I'll definitely be going longer. Um, I, I love the idea of a comrades. Um, I don't know about like hundred milers seem a little bit too long right now, but maybe 50 Ks at some point. And, uh, and I think one of the things about Boston with those conditions that 26.2 mile race, it was like, all right, you got to run this like a 30 miler in, that actually worked out quite well for me. And so it's it's um, definitely in the future and I think pretty soon. So we'll see.
2: Do you have a bucket list ultra? ultra? Like is it Comrades or would it be something else? Um,
1: comrades is on there. The UTMB looks super fascinating. Um, I just don't know enough about it. Just those two races have kind of been intriguing. But uh, Magdalena Louis Belay is someone who, I will pick her brain on, on what to do and where to go because she's been kind of, a role model in taking that next step and you know just finding love in the sport you know she just looks like she's having the most fun when she's out there doing those races so um i'll start talking to her soon
3: let's talk more specifically about the trials upcoming i mean you said you're seven weeks out you really need to get into the into the big and i guess the next two to three weeks are going to be critical but how are you healthy how have things been going how confident are you at this point i mean you know, I think just last night, even like one of your competitors, Jordan, to say she was going to run the Houston half. Now she's not running the Houston half. So that's probably means something's up with her. Like, do you pay attention to that too? Like how the other people are doing Or are you just focusing on yourself? And then um, one other question I had was, you're not part of the Hanson's group anymore. So do you train alone or do you have someone running with you or riding a bike? Just how does the logistics? I used to worry, worry about Weldon when he was in five step alone, but he seemed to train fine just by himself. Mm-hmm. So maybe answer those questions for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely keep an eye on running news cause I just find it interesting. So like when someone pulls out of a race, it's like, hmm, I wonder what's going on there. Um, but all in all, it's, you just got to get yourself in shape, you know? And, um, I've been down here about a week and had a pretty solid workout. So it's still kind of finding out like, what are those Michigan miles, um, really mean out here? And am I on pace or am I a little bit behind? And, Um, I'll have a big session either today or tomorrow and we'll kind of have some answers there. But I I think that I have a good chunk of time either way, whether I'm behind or not Um, I'm healthy. So that's the biggest thing. Like if you're healthy, no problem. I know how to get in shape. So that's a a nice spot to be in and and definitely the body feels good right now. So that's um, I think, you know, I can get a lot done in the next couple of weeks and be ready to go for Atlanta. Um, The second part of the question, can you repeat it again?
3: Do you you train alone or who do you train with? How does that work?
1: I'm doing a lot alone. So in in Michigan, I'll work out with – my husband, Ryan, goes out and quite a bit of stuff with me. And then out here in Phoenix, um, it's super easy to just bump into people if you run out at at the right time on the canals or you're in the right spot. So I can connect with someone on just about any day of the week. But um, I actually enjoy running alone quite a bit as well. And the workouts and stuff, I think it's actually – Pretty advantageous to be able to do those hard sessions by yourself without that extra help and then you have that moment where there's people around you and it feels like it's just a little bit easier but uh, it also if you're forced to take the lead you're like okay well I do this every day at practice this isn't like me doing work for somebody else it's just what I've done every day so um, there's some value in that
3: what would you say the biggest change is between now and when you're with the Hanson's group what what have you changed about the training and is there anything that you've changed because you're 36 and not say not 28 anymore?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot more, um, recovery between sessions, which is, uh, just a big change from what the Hansons do is pretty, um, not rigid, but it was very structured in how they did the workouts and when they did them. Uh, I think the concept of cumulative fatigue is, is super beneficial for me for a long time. And it's like, train your body to run on tired legs um, and now, you know, I, I, just can't afford to be that tired all the time. And, you know, I think cumulative fatigue can become chronic fatigue and particularly when you're 34, 35, 36. And so, uh, we're prioritizing recovery in between stuff a lot more. And then I think the sessions are probably if I'm doing a, a shorter speed workout, a lot more difficult, like Walt's expectations of what I might be able to do on the track or, are pretty high and I'm like I there's no freaking way I cannot turn my legs over that fast and then I end up surprising myself by the end and so those are more aggressive but I would say the longer um threshold and marathon pace up is um a little bit more relaxed almost
0: When you said you were behind do you have like past workouts you sort of measure yourself off of cuz I think there's sort of two approaches to training one is you're just where you at and you just got to get fitter and the other is like oh I got to hit these certain times is there one of those strategies you feel better or you kind of combine both or you just sort of know, Hey, I can get to this point seven weeks from now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I can compare my, I have so many marathon segments I kind of compare where I've been in the past. Um, But again, coming off of like the winter, the conditions are so different and it's like, I don't really know what this workout means because it was kind of icy or slippery. And um, so I don't, necessarily think I'm behind. It's just figuring out exactly where I'm at, but seven weeks is, is a long stretch. And sometimes it's comparing to like, you have, you know, people out running really great races or you can go on Strava and see like what the NAZ elite team is doing. Those guys are cracking big workouts every week. You're like, man, I, th- I think I'm behind. Um, and then it always kind of pans out in the end that you're just right on pace that you need to be on. So, um, I, I mean, I look at that stuff on occasion too. It's like, Oh, that's a, that's an amazing workout. How are they doing that every week? And it kind of make you feel a little off.
2: <laughs> will you race before the trials?
1: I will not. I kind of had rock and roll Arizona penciled in just, um, you have to sign up for these races so early now just to get a bib. And I, I think that's a thing with Houston, like, is Jordan really hurt or did she just sign up like six months ago and now it doesn't make sense, you know, or is she kind of dinged up or something, you know, it's, just another wrench in the, in the questions there. Um, but yeah, I had, so I had Brock and roll Arizona penciled in and it just didn't make sense anymore. And so, um, no races before the trials.
2: You have to sign up early. I feel like if you just show up to any race in America, you can say like, Hey, I want to run. And they'll be like, sure. Come right in. You know?
1: <laughs> no, maybe, maybe other people, not me. <laughs>
3: John, this is a nice. She she doesn't pull her. Hey, do you know who I am? Card very often. <laughs> yeah. She's tipping the journalists just like we would like all of our visitors to. Yeah, one dollar, everybody, one dollar a listen. We'll be pretty rich soon.
2: Yes,
0: or John will be at least.
2: Yeah, I mean, if Des Linden can donate, what's your excuse, guys? So that's a, a challenge to our listeners. Des,
0: since winning Boston, are, are you recognized a lot more on the street and that sort of thing? Like, are, are you sort of a mini celebrity of sorts? Has your life changed outside of running a ton? I mean. I hope you get paid a lot more now and that sort of thing, but just day-to-day existence, I feel like you probably have a good, good amount of celebrity. Nobody wants to be like a Meghan Markle, right? I mean, but if you're recognized every once in a while, just, I mean, how how is how has that transform- transformation been?
1: I think it's kind of, it's actually slowly evolved over the years and like at an appropriate pace. So like the 2011 Boston race like kind of upped my status like a little bit and then you make an Olympic team and and so I've been able to like manage the changes along the way um so no one no one gets into running to be rich or famous which is um hard to believe in my situation because I'm dripping with both that's a joke (laughs) um but yeah I mean it's you know it's easy to just slowly build into it and it happens every now and then, and you're almost flattered by it because someone cares about running, and that's pretty cool. So,
0: yeah, I, th- I uh you should be staying at like the Four Seasons, right? <laughs> like not like a garage apartment. Yeah, I think one thing runners learn is to be frugal. Like New- Mab came to New York for a week if you last year for something, and I assume the first few nights he was with the NYRR at a hotel, and then he was like staying at a friend's apartment, and I'm like, man, like I get it. So. Yeah.
1: Nothing lasts forever, so you have to manage it well while you're in it. But I don't need a lot. I mean, I think that's the thing is, like, when you are professional running, it's like you need a good place to sleep, you need great food, and then the rest of the time you're just too tired to do anything. So you listen to podcasts.
0: Ten years from now, what do you think you'll be doing? I mean, assuming the ultra career is winded down, you'll always be desk and, and do you know running related stuff, maybe like Bill Rogers, Frank Shorters, Joan, Joni Benoit, those people. But have you really thought about post-professional running career for you?
1: Yeah, Brooks asked me to do like a 10-year plan a while back. And it was interesting to just kind of dig into it and, and ask that question. But I would love to um, start a New Year's Eve race somewhere just really cool and make it like a big hurrah, like event. So that would be fun to have on the table. Um, And then Walt and I have talked a little bit about getting a pro team up in Charlevoix, which can be a tough sell when you're out there in the winter. But, you know, I think we would probably travel a little bit. But maybe working with athletes, um, that would be kind of fun. And then other days, like, you hear running news and it's just all garbage. And I'm like, man, maybe I should just be a secretary. (laughs) So I don't
3: know. Does you miss you missed the great opportunity for a sponsor plug when you said all you need is you also need great coffee, right? Won't, won't Linden by Two be like the new Starbucks of the world? and
1: That's right. Yeah, well, it's been going pretty well. And um the 2018 year was just, we we're blown away by the support. And we've kind of like paid off all our equipment and a lot of the expenses that there's just not a lot of expenses that come with roasting coffee. So we're in a really great spot where, um, Ryan can have a lot of fun with, uh, you know, just working with stuff that he likes and people he likes. And so we're, we actually, um, cool thing we do is we're working with Tracksmith and sponsoring some of the, um, Olympic trials qualifiers through their program. And so everyone's getting you know, free coffee a couple of times, um, a year out there, and we'll do some stuff at the trials with, with Brooks as well. And so, yeah, hopefully that will keep growing, but it's it's certainly fun even if it um, never becomes anything bigger.
2: <laughs> what about a Dez whiskey? Are we going to see that anytime soon?
1: Um, I don't think so, man. That sounds like a lot of work and chemistry and tasting alcohol, which I don't have time for.
0: <laughs> you can You can have them make it for you, then you just taste it, then you license it out. I think that's the way to
2: do
1: it. That's probably the right direction with that.
2: No, I I thought the labels were good in the little, uh, you know, Twitter video you had. So uh, you got a starting point.
1: They did an awesome job with that. And they actually did coffee ones too that if you zoom in, it's like, you know, the altitude they're grown at was like the course elevation profile. Like they just, the details were pretty incredible. So um, hats off to Brooks for making that pretty fun.
0: And speaking, you're talking about, you know, some running news can be trash. Do you ever read the Let's Run forums? I had a question. Hey, what should we ask our guest special guest podcast person they didn't know who it was so they kind of had to come up with witty stuff and somebody said oh you know what can we do to improve the forums so first of all do you ever read the forums
1: yeah I don't I mean I'm not like um always on there or anything like that like I'll tune in every now and then because I enjoy the news um but I think as I've progressed in the sport I've probably turned away from it a little more um, than before, like as, as a collegiate, like that was the spot to go. Like you were like, oh, running news, like what's going on? Like, what are the rumors? Um, and then, so I've slowly weaned myself away from it, but I do think it's, it's fun. I love conversation, conversations and chatter on running. And so that it can be a fun spot. Um, I think there was one post a long time ago that was like, where are all these Kenyans coming from? And like that stuff just cracks me up. Um, so you have to click it and read it. Okay, yeah. And it's like seven pages of just jokes. Um, so like that stuff, I, I sometimes there's one that just will catch your eye or you go from the front page and get redirected there. So yeah, I think that was it.
2: And Des, as a, you know, one of the top professionals on, on the women's side of the sport, I'm kind of interested in your input on this. We got some criticism a few months ago from Leo O'Connor about some posts that were made about her when she was in college. Mm-hmm. And, we're always trying to make the message boards a better place, a more inclusive place. Um, I know that I think Alicia Montano and some of the women, like a few other women have said they don't visit the site because of how women are treated. Sometimes are there improvements you would like to see or any way you think we can make the message boards a better place?
1: Um, I don't, I mean, I don't get my feelings hurt if I'm going to a place like a message boards, you know, it's like, it's a free for all. And Like, if you're going to enter that realm, like, you got to go in with thick skin, uh, which is why I spend less time there than ever before. And each year, maybe a little bit less. But, yeah, I mean, there's certain topics that it's just, like, blatantly, like, you're taking your time to put someone down, you know, and that stuff should just kind of be removed. But as as a person coming to this, like, that type of forum, it's like, you know, ask yourself where these opinions are coming from and why they matter and do they matter. And then, you know, if, if you can't answer those in a great way, then don't really worry about the opinion or stop coming to the site or whatever it may be. But, yeah, I mean, you do what you can, but it part of the appeal is that it's a place where you can just talk openly. And so um, if they're not adding anything to the conversation with the comment about a female or a body or a look, then I guess – you know, take it away if possible. But it's hard to police all that, I can imagine.
0: I mean, one thing that I realized, and I think obviously we want to keep doing a better job, but just in general, people can be mean to each other. And even like this whole Meghan Markle, Prince Harry stuff, they can be mean for various reasons. And if, like, I can pretend like sometimes people say stuff about me on there and I'm like, oh, it doesn't bug me. And sometimes it really bugs me. But as you get more of a platform, like someone can say fire something off at Twitter with you. Like you said you have a thick skin, but do you gradually learn that over time or you just sort of realize it comes with the territory or just, I don't know what advice it sounds like also you listen to sports radio. The difference of sports radio is like, it's gone here. Like somebody says it and it's, it's either it's there until either it's deleted or it's there permanently essentially. So it, it's, there's something different I think about the written word, but
1: yeah. How do you
0: manage that a bit?
1: I think, I mean, for me, like I, I remember in high school, my coach, you know, we had like a, local community board or whatever. And it was like, you know, just the people posting the most are probably not the people running the best. So it'd figure out where you want to be. And it's like one of those things I wouldn't, I don't ever post on the boards. And I mean, it's a weird comparison I made a long time ago. It was like, oh, if you're posting, you're probably not running well. So, um, if I care so much that I'm like, I need to comment on this then I should probably just walk away. Or even with like sports talk radio, like I'll like, you know, hate an opinion and be yelling at the radio in the, in the living room. And, but I would never pick up the phone and call and be like, I need to be on this show to tell them what I really think. And and if I ever get to that point, it's like, maybe turn off the radio for a while and go do something else. Like you care too much about this person that you don't even know. So um, that's just kind of how I approach it. Yeah. Our
0: very own Rojo loves to call in the Cowboys post game show.
1: <laughs> Sorry
0: about that. <laughs> No, it's a huge problem. He's always, we can tell he cares too much about it. What, uh, so a couple of kind of rapid fire questions, maybe. Growing up, like what runner did you look up to? Did you follow the sport? Who were your inspiration stars?
1: Um, I probably got into it late in the game, but obviously Dina. And then I went backwards. It was like Dina. And then, okay, oh, the history, like Joni's amazing. Like figured that out. Um, but Dina was the person.
0: What other sports do you really follow? I know you've been on a part of my take. Like, Are you just an all around sports fan or you got your favorites?
1: Yeah, I like Formula One a lot, which we can debate if that's a sport or not, but I, I consider it a sport. Um, and then I like NFL. I uh, used to be a Chargers fan when they're in San Diego, which is tough work. Um, and then when they left San Diego, I was like, okay, I have my Sundays back. Um, or I could be a Lions fan, which is, you know, I just maybe casually float around and watch games here and there. Um, and then NCAA football is really fun.
2: So that's interesting You because you, you haven't lived in San Diego for a while, but moving to L.A. was the deal breaker for you?
1: Yeah. No, like L.A. and San Diego, that's like massive rivalry. It's like Chargers, Raiders. Um, and Josh and I fight about this all the time because he's a San Diego boy who, you know, he roots for the Raiders who are in L.A., And he's got this whole backstory about his dad. But every boy who's not from LA who cheers for the Raiders has his backstory where it's they just liked the logo when they were a little kid. They were like, "Oh, it's a pirate and scary and like whatever." So that's my story.
0: (laughs) And uh, we should have you uh, break down the Houston half of Women's Field for us, the American Field. We got Molly Huddle running. Jordan Sa is out, so it's Huddle and uh, Sarah Hole is the other. Big name, like will you analyze that? Who be who Does that factor in much?
1: I think um, Molly Seidel will be interesting to watch. Uh, I think she's probably not getting a lot of love, but I think she could pop a good one. Her one ten in in San Antonio is really impressive. That's just that's a tough course, and so I think you know she's probably built from there. Um, but Houston's it's it's flat, it's fast, it's probably paced. So I don't really take you know too much away from that. And even looking at the trials stuff, like you know there's some really fast times coming in, but they were in flat courses with pacers. And that's not to me. That's when you make it a true race and there's moves and decisions and things you have to think about for 26.2 miles, it becomes something totally different because a pacer is a huge aid.
0: And were you surprised how fast Sarah Hall ran this last year?
1: That was, I was actually pretty surprised. Not that she's not a great runner, but obviously um, coming off of her, she had a rough Boston and the year prior was a little dinged up. So Um, You didn't know exactly what she could put together, but Berlin's a great place to run um, and they got a a pretty nice day. So, and she's certainly capable. I mean, she has the turnover and has been building the engine for a long time now. So it's good to see that.
0: But, you know, she did that in Berlin. As you said, the Atlanta course is crazy from what I've heard. I haven't seen it, but you have, I think, and our employee 1.101 out there. Is it, much harder than a Boston is the Boston prep similar because they both have Hills, but you know, Boston's got the big downhill at the beginning and then rolling Hills. Like what are you doing for Atlanta course?
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty, probably New York is probably a little more comparable um, which isn't, it's just, there's always another climb to kind of look over. And that last part coming into central park is just tough when, when you're already a little bit beat up and fatigued. And so I think that'll be really similar to Atlanta. Just like, they added one big hill at the end just to kind of mess with you. They were like, oh, it's great. There's the Olympic rings. This picture will be amazing. Um, And then there's like a death climb up to it. So um, it's a little bit like going into central park late when you're tired. So I think that, I think people who ran New York, if they regrouped and kind of found their legs from there, um, have good practice and kind of a good, that was a good situation for a lot of people. So um, I, w- I would expect people who ran well there to do decent in Atlanta. And, um, yeah, I think I'll do similar training where it's just workouts are relatively flat. Uh, we might throw in a couple hills here and there. But just regular runs and long runs are on some pretty cool terrain. Is it fair to say this is your last Olympic trials? <laughs> um, I don't know, man. Meb, Meb made, made it look good in his 40s. So who knows? I'm not, I kind of, you know, I've said this a few times, like I'm approaching every race as it's, as if it's my last marathon. And, you know, it's one of those things where you talk to people like who've retired and it's like, would you want to know it was your last game or your last big um, event or your last big at bat, or would you rather find out later and afterwards? And so I'm going to the point where it's inevitable. It's going to come at some point here, but I'm going to attack each one like it might be my last so that if it is, I can be super satisfied with it. Um, but that doesn't mean it's going to be my last. If I can recover well and, and sign up for the next one, like bring it on, and then I'll attack that one like it could be the last one. And so if that happens for four more years, um, it'll be super annoying for Jonathan. who's just like, I hate writing about this shit, but it'll be good for me.
2: <laughs> well, we know for a fact this isn't going to be a loss because you're already signed up for Boston, so...
0: Yeah, I mean, now that John's getting the tips, he'll keep writing. But there you go. we need a sponsor plug, by the way. This is the last known marathon, where, Olympic trials marathon, where you can see Des. So everybody needs to go out to Atlanta, watch Des on Saturday, and then you can run the Atlanta Publix 5K half marathon or 10K the next day. So, I mean, the Olympic trials are so cool. I mean, I guess I've run them, but not very well. But Des, as a fan, I love it. It's great. Like, I don't know. Do you is the fan base different there as a runner for you than a world marathon major or I don't know. What do you think about the fans at the trials?
1: It's fantastic. I mean, I remember running the day before Boston, which was a great place to have it hosted. And then the, the New York ones as well. Um, you know, all the best Boston runners are out there and they're excited and they're, they don't care that they're running a marathon the next day. They're just going to go and cheer for who's going to make that Olympic team. And, um, you know, Houston did an awesome job as well. I, I think Atlanta with Rich Kanaw. he just knows how to create an event. And, um, they've been selling this whole thing out there to the the public in Atlanta for a while and getting kids excited and getting the community excited. So I think they'll have a great turnout, but it's cool. It's just, there's so much on the line and it's not just like, oh, here's the video of the winner and, and the rest of the people come in and that's, you know, less prize money or whatever. It's like these three spots mean something huge. And, um, you get invested in it and you, you have like emotion around people that are in the race and that's what creates fans. And that's what creates moments. So it is a, a, certainly a special event.
3: I've got kind of one unrelated question, but I've, I've been thinking about it. I recently became a father. My brother is going to be a father soon. It's totally different for a guy. Like we don't have to think about that in terms of impacting your running career. But as a woman, if you want to have your own children, it's something you kind of have a limited time frame. I mean, I guess you could always adopt children, come home with three kids like Sarah Hall, or four. Is it four? I forgot how many. But is that something like that you've you've thought about? Like, hey, if I want to do that, I only have a limited amount of time, or is it something? That, I don't know. That, that, it's definitely, you know, people want to treat men and women the same, but there's just there is a biological fact there that is a little bit different. So I'm sure a lot of women kind of wonder that question.
1: Is that was that a question submitted from my mother-in-law? Or?
3: <laughs> well, yes.
0: <laughs> Also, is that an inappropriate question? I would never ask that, but I'm like, I'm a dude. Like, we're, you know, we shouldn't ask if you're having kids, but I just in general, it affects a career. It's just a different. If a guy wants to start a family, yeah, we. My wife is six months pregnant right now. It's pretty easy for me, but <laughs> a woman has to give up a year of her professional, the prime of her career. There's no way around it.
1: Yeah, no. It's, I mean, it's obviously things to consider. And um, Ryan and I like. We have dogs and they're just stressful. Like, that's super hard. So, we're like, I probably not children, people. And maybe it'll change, like, that could change. Um, and I think, like, I you mean, know, I don't necessarily know the whole ins and outs of fertility and like how long is safe and all of that stuff. But those are conversations that you I mean, you can have with doctors. But I, I think that, that those numbers are extending later in life or, like, before it would be, like, your geriatric parent if you had a kid at 36. And I don't think that's the case anymore. So, um, you know, if we get to a point where something to consider or we're interested in that, like, you go and ask all the questions and um, find the best people to help you figure it out. But right now it's it's not been something that I've – had to think about. Um, and I understand for other athletes, it certainly is, but everyone has, it's a decision and to, to be able to run as a profession, um, is a luxury. And so like any year you get to do it is, um, is kind of gravy. And I'm not saying like stepping away to have a child isn't important, but like, also we have to recognize that it's a pretty, pretty, Cool deal to be able to run as a profession, anyways. Like we go from A to B. We're not, you know, curing cancer or anything like that. So um, every minute you have on the sport is uh, already kind of a gravy. Hopefully, your mother-in-law is not listening. Or... <laughs> I hope she is.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If we, I don't know if we're going to get the tip from her. It's probably not the answer she wanted. But hey, I mean, everyone's got to do like what they want in life, right? Like we all have different paths and different journeys and what we want to do. And you know, it sounds like the mother-in-law wants a grandkid, but. Hey, you know, I think as long as you two are happy, that's what's important.
3: My, Des, my, don't rule it out. My best friend from college, she's about to have her fourth child at 46. I don't think she started until she was like 38 or 39.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I hear this story. You never know yeah. where it's going to end up.
3: All right. Well,
0: Jess, we've taken way too much time of yours. but any tips for the podcast? What should we be doing more of, less of? You know, some people don't have any running stuff, non-running stuff.
1: Yeah, no, I doing it. it's it been fun to listen to. I love the banter. Um, I was talking to someone. They're like, Oh, they always stray off topic. I'm like, but that's what makes podcasts fun. Like you don't know what direction it could go. So um, I think it's, it's been great. And obviously stat stats man gets paid is the make Jonathan a t-shirt because he brings the reality to the situation. Um, but the whole thing is it's very on brand. Let's run like you guys, the brothers of the dreamers. And then, Jonathan brings him back to reality, so it's a, a twist to your logo.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask: Are you are you pro or pro or anti Rojo and his hot takes?
1: I love the hot takes. I mean, I don't always agree with them, but that's the stuff that makes you yell at your radio and want to call in. So.
2: Oh my god! Now that's going to go straight to Rojo's head, and he's going to bring it up probably every episode from now. He's got the Boston Marathon champion seal of endorsement, so. <laughs>
3: That's good. My, my, I should make my wife listen to that part. I think she thinks my hot days are a little too hot. But Des, you can only listen to us once a week. Actually, maybe this week we should drop this as its own podcast because it's so long that we can do a, our other podcasts later in the week. But you can only listen to us for like an hour, hour and a half a week. What other podcasts do you enjoy? You say you are you like them.
1: Yeah, so the sports uh, radio guy in Detroit is always on at our house, uh, Valeni Um and then I like, I listen to a lot of running stuff. I think Kara's podcast will have some good guests every now and then that I'll dial into um, with the trials coming up. The rambling runner guy's been interviewing contenders, which is kind of fun. Ross Tucker does a decent job with some of the science nerdy stuff. Uh, and then I listen to stuff that's just not running related at all, like comedy bang, bang, which is just improv. That's ridiculous. And um, so there's a wide variety.
0: Thank you. You can be a guest host anytime you want. I don't know if this counts as guest hosting since we had you for an hour and I thought it was going to be like 20 minutes, but we appreciate it. Yeah.
1: Anytime you need a, a female perspective, that's, um, I don't know, it's a little more even keeled, I think, than than some out there. I'm up for it.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah, that, it is kind of crazy. Most sports radio is what, probably like 80% male, at least, maybe higher. A lot of the hosts.
3: Well, Des, as journalists, we're not supposed to be rooting, but since I won't be at the trials, I will be quietly cheering you on from afar. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, Des. All
0: right,
2: thanks Thanks for your time, Des. Good to hear from you. Good luck in Atlanta. Take care. All right, thank you to Des Linden for her time. Uh, She's very generous with it. Now let's go. A lot of stuff happened, actually, guys. Last week we joked there wasn't anything to talk about. I feel like there was almost too much to talk about this week. Uh, We had the Vaporfly you know, the may be banned. That's uh, or a version of the vaporfly may be banned. Matt Lawton reporting that in the times uh, on Tuesday night, you've got the Houston half marathon coming up this weekend. You've got Wilson Kipsang has been provisionally suspended for four years based on well whereabouts violations and tampering. Uh, that's yet to be totally adjudicated, but he's suspended for right now. Galen Rupp gets a new coach. He's working with Mike Smith. Now, Mary Kane ran her first finished her first track race since 2016 I mean, it's a it's a embarrassment of riches for the podcast uh, world. So where do you guys want to start?
3: I think we need to start with the Mike Smith news. Galen Rupp, last week's podcast. We, we John, you seem to be concerned that he didn't have a coach. I'm like, why does it matter if he has his coach? I didn't actually go back and listen to the podcast. but I should have because I let Weldon say some stupid prediction that Galen Rupp would make the Olympic team. Of course he makes the Olympic team. But, John, you were worried that a super talent like Rupp or whatever – Didn't have a coach. He now has a coach. I wasn't
2: worried about that, Robert. He can make the team without a coach. It's just an area to be... It's something interesting.
0: This is great. I say a hot take, and you guys pretty much blame it on John or ignore it. That's the one advantage of being the sort of even-handed one. I feel embarrassed. I might have to take a suspension for a week or something. Like, holy shit. I, like, even titled the podcast, like, Galen Rupp may not make Olympic... Or, Galen I put a question mark and an exclamation. But... I thought for a hot take it was pretty good. I didn't know who was coaching him. I thought, well, if he's kind of unguided and Alberto's coaching him secretly, maybe he falls apart. I mean, Mike Smith, I don't think, has he coached marathoners? But I'm very impressed with Mike Smith. I think Galen Rupp will make the team. Um, you get a little more information and hey, they showed me I'm an idiot. So,
2: Well, it's there's only one logical conclusion from this. Galen saw the podcast, realized... Oh, no, I'm not going to make the marathon team. We- Weejo says I'm not going to do it. I need to hire a coach. He hired Mike Smith, and now we're here. So Weldon, congratulations.
0: John, do you feel an insult as a journalist? You reached out to Ricky Sims, you know, essentially asking who's the coach. Nothing comes out, and then like a day later, they go to, was it uh, Sarah Butler in Runner's World?
2: Sarah, I mean, Sarah reached out to Ricky, and she didn't tell him anything. She learned it by other means. I got beat in the story. I mean, good job for her to her for breaking the news. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not really upset with you, John.
3: Okay, but I, I don't understand. T- to me, it doesn't matter who's coaching Rupp. He's miles better than everyone else in America. He makes a team if he's healthy. What I don't understand is this reaction Weldon had, it too. I love Mike Smith. Oh, this is great for Rupp. Some people think, oh, some. I mean, I, I guess you shouldn't react to what people are saying on the message board. One person says... Oh, I used to hate Rupp, but now I'm going to root for him. I don't get why this change makes Rupp more likable because he has a normal coach. And I've received an email from a podcast listener, a Let's Run Visitor, who was outraged by the move. I went on the message board and after this was made, and I put a post, and I said that, um, you know, I think that just for career-wise, I thought that it was a smart move for Mike Smith. I said, lots of upside, little downside. One He could have a lucrative side business coaching pros and flag staff. The reality is the NAU job does not pay anything like one of these SEC jobs. It's not a really super high-paid job like a Pat Henry major at Texas A&M or anything like that. So, one, he could develop a lucrative side business with all the pros going to altitude. Two, it raises his profile for recruiting. He can tell recruits, hey, I'm coaching Mike Galen Rupp. And then three, it gets him in the good graces of Nike. Never a bad thing in this sport. Um, and then I said, four, look, there's a little downside because if Rupp flames out, people won't blame him. They'll blame the injury or assume that Rupp was on drugs under Salazar and is no longer on the androgel. Um, I said really the only negative would be somehow if he gets caught up by, from talking to Salazar and then Mike Smith himself gets banned. But I think he's smart enough not to do that. But I posted on the message board and then someone emails me. I'm going to call this the email of the week. And, and this person says, I'm more than a bit surprised by your statement. Are we supposed to just forget about everything that has tr- transpires? This may be a self-serving move by Mike Smith, but I find it shocking that you think it's smart. What message does this send to his college team? Regardless of the lack of sanction by USADA and WADA, Rupp was a very willing participant in salvage our scheme. So we just move on and normalize this outrageous behavior. Yes, a great move by Rupp as it provides a smokescreen, but I find it sad that Mike who is a good guy and coach, enters the fray. And that you seem to think this is some kind of good career move. John, what do you think of that email?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the reader has a few fair points. But the biggest thing to me is in the interview Mike Smith did with Sarah Butler, he explains, like, I... I know there are a lot of questions about Galen. I asked him hard questions. I think he's misunderstood, but he didn't really get into specifics. And I guess what I would be interested in hearing, I have a lot of respect for Mike Smith. I think he's a great coach. I think Galen, you know, that's a good decision for him to go to Mike. You know, I applaud that. But the, the, for him, I think the question I, I have is, is what did Galen tell you? Or what did he show you to sort of convince you that he's someone you should be working about or working with? Because, Remember, this is a guy as far back as high school, Steve Magnus found these files saying he was on testosterone medication. It's not sure if that was testo boost or if it was actual testosterone. And then there are questions about the, you know, injections he went down to have with Dr. Brown. It's not totally clear if those are under the limit. You sort of can't can't prove it. They haven't sanctioned him. But I, I think what I'm most interested to know is what exactly about Galen Rupp convinced you? Because he said he's a hard worker. People you know, don't know how hard and how dedicated he is. I think everyone knows that. I mean, he's a two-time Olympic medalist. We know he's a hard worker. We know he's dedicated to the sport. The question is, do he cross any lines? And I want to hear what Mike Smith's explanation that Galen gave to him is.
3: Yeah, John, I think the quote that Mike used in the article was what I found out by getting to know Galen was that there was much more going on than the picture portrayed of him. And I wish the world knew that. I've never seen someone more all in in my life. I just I didn't understand this comment at all. Like, so he assumed before this that Rupp was a doper and then he didn't work hard. I mean, there's nothing to say that dopers don't work hard. So I, I'm shocked that all of a sudden he's like, oh, Rupp's you know, sort of implying that Rupp's automatically cleaned to snow just because he works hard. I really did not understand that, that that quote and would like him to elaborate on that.
0: Yeah, I don't understand the quote either. Of course Rupp works hard. I mean, you don't run the times he's run without working hard. As to the emailer, you know, Rupp was a willing participant. Let's say it came out that something nefarious was going on and Rupp was doped back in high school or something or who knows, but... I argue would almost argue if, like, Rupp was a – if the sexes were almost reversed, Rupp would be – could easily be seen as a victim regardless of the sex. But, like, if he was a high school girl starting out and was put on testo boost and then it came out, like, 15 years later that this guy had, like, secretly been doping him or something or some sh- shady stuff was going on, he was told to do it. Galen Rupp, yeah, I mean, it, but that would be very hard, right? Let's say you started under this program at 16, whatever was going on. At some point, you find out some of it might be breaking rules. I think it's hard then to exit. It's such a power imbalance because you start out as a kid, and it's just some of the Mary Kane issues sort of just with a different person, I, I would sort of argue. I mean, obviously not the fat shaming and that sort of stuff, but just sort of a very powerful guy at Nike taking on a high school kid. When is he ever going to like jump out of that and say – and then you keep having success. You're like, no. I think it would be hard for someone to exit that now, the kids, that doesn't mean don't do the right thing. And if you see something wrong going on, like you have the power and agency to stop it. But to act like if it would be easy to, to leave such a situation, I don't think is accurate.
3: What I would like to know is how this went down. Did Rub actually pick up a phone and call Mike Smith? I mean, Rub's not viewed as the most outgoing person. Or did he have someone from Nike who sort of lay the groundwork first? I mean, it would be, as a coach, it's going to be flattering if, Rob, if the phone actually rings in the office and this Galen Rub sort of. Requesting that you coach him. um One question I haven't done, and I, I know the Flow Track—I I really don't watch their stuff—but they they did a profile on, on Mike Smith. They followed any U team this year, you know, and and went behind the scenes, and then they don't win the national championship. And I was wondering, I'm like, once they lost, it's easy to second criticize. I'm like, wow, I wonder this sort of desire for publicity backfired in their face, and then now Mike's getting more publicity by coaching Rupp. So. I didn't watch it, John. Did you watch that that, that series? I, I actually wanted to call my friend Chris Lear. I was like, this seems a little bit like they're publicity hungry, but then I thought, well, Mike Mark Wetmore's not publicity hungry and he let my good friend Chris Lear write Running with the Buffaloes. So I'm wondering if this video was like a modern day version of Running with the Buffaloes, or is it more like a PR piece, you know, to sell thirty dollar subscriptions to Flowtrack?
2: No, I, I I watched it all. I thought it was well done and they they give you a lot of cool behind the scenes stuff, sort of uh, throughout the whole season, they have interviews with all of the guys on the team. And the, one of the coolest things I thought was the final episode, it's just the NCAA championships. And they essentially, they have a mic and a camera on Mike Smith at almost all times. And you just follow him and see the whole meet through his eyes, which I thought was really neat. So it, it's sort of, you know, Running with the Buffaloes, it, it's obviously different because Running with the Buffaloes is a book. But I think if you're a track fan, I, I'd recommend it. Uh, but I don't think it's a publicity... Hunk. I don't think Mike Smith went to FlowTrack and said, hey, you know, give us our own TV show. They probably approached him with the idea. Sometimes when FlowTrack does these series, they pay the subjects, So they might have said, hey, NAU will give you guys some money for your program, something like that. And I think it turned out is a good product. So I think it's probably a win-win for everyone. They pay the subjects? I didn't know that. But also, of course, it's going to be done for PR.
0: Like, I mean he's not going to do it unless he wants a good PR thing from it. Like, you know, uh, those things, I've never seen anything much negative in any of those things. So I think as a coach, you're doing it. Hey, I'm going to get good, good PR for this. So I, I do not think you'd be doing it for payment if they pay him even better. But like, I assume you just do it like, Hey, I know they're going to put a positive spin on what I'm doing here.
2: Well, yeah, he's no dummy. Like high school kids watch flow track and they're going to see this. They already, they're already a popular program. I mean, Nico Young, the top Commit in the country, top recruit in the country committed to them. But yeah, this helps raise their profile. Obviously, there is a benefit to it from PR, but I don't think, again, I would bet Flowtrack approached him with this idea. And then he's like, well, I don't have anything to hide. It doesn't matter
3: who approached who, John. I'm just saying, is it, I don't know, like, aren't you going to act differently when a camera's in your face when you're giving a speech to the team?
2: You might or you might be so used to them because they're at every meet, you sort of just forget. It seemed you know, seemed pretty raw and honest to me most of the time. There was a scene, I think it was the Wisconsin Invitational, one of their athletes didn't run well and they, they didn't show the actual break. They went through basically a panic attack and they didn't show the exact footage of the panic attack, but you kind of could hear them hyperventilating and hear them what they were saying to them. It was, you know, they didn't shy away from that. One thing I,
3: I have about... One other unanswered question I have about this, John, and it seems to me, and not that I consider myself to have a master's in journalism and be like a real journalist like you, John, but I do think sometimes we, if I'm going to count myself a journalist, sometimes people miss the obvious questions when they're doing an interview. I don't know if they're afraid to do it or not, but the obvious question that is not answered anywhere on here is, is he being paid by Nike? You know, hey, hey, Mike, you want to coach me? No. If I pay you $25,000, will he coach me? Yes. So I don't understand how that question's not asked, John. So sometimes when you're interviewing someone, remember, ask the obvious question.
2: I don't view that question as obvious. I mean, that's not the first thing people... The first thing people want to know is why are you working with him? What convinced him to work with you? I, I don't think... Well, right. Money might be it. I think it's an interesting development, though, because NAU is an Adidas school. And I know I, when other athletes sometimes try to work with coaches, collegiate coaches, who are tied to one shoe brand... Uh, they might not be able to do it. If you're a Nike athlete and you want to work with an Adidas coach, sometimes you know Nike will put their foot down and say, no, you can't do this, or Adidas will put their foot down and say, no. So I'm somewhat surprised that Nike and Adidas are allowing that to happen.
0: I mean, NAU is a pretty small school. Is there a whole school Adidas? But I don't think NAU, M- Mike Smith is an Adidas coach by any stretch of the imagination. And I assume, of course, he's getting paid. Is this just how low running is that we're assuming – The top marathoner in the world is going to have a coach and not pay him? I mean, top marathoner in the United States? Like, can you imagine an NFL quarterback saying like, hey, you know, I'll work with you, but I won't
3: pay you? Uh, Just assume he gets paid. So anyways, in terms of the practical implications of this, I think that, I don't know, it doesn't really matter to me who's coaching Galen Rupp. I thought he was going to make the team. Of course, he's going to make the team unless he's hurt. And he could be more likely to be hurt. Obviously, he had the surgery. We do remember. We do remember, he did drop out of that Chicago race. But I think even with that healthiness, I think he could have gutted that race out and still made the team. But assuming, let's say, he was getting these maybe unknowingly androgel massages, that could affect his recovery, and make the injury more likely. He's getting a little bit older. But um, come on, yeah,
2: Robin, what you really, you really think? After the whole Salazar investigation, he was still... if Even if he was rubbing... rubbed down at some point, he would still be doing that, like, post-Chicago, and now that's going to change him as a run. I I don't know. I'm just...
3: Well, I'm saying he just got injured when the he gets hurt. I, I, John, people act like it's outrageous. What do you mean? I just got an email from a guy who's obviously assuming that he was doping. So... I'm not saying whether he was doping or not, but we we can't act like oh Salazar was obviously doping these athletes, and then assume that Rob and Farah and all these other people.
2: I I have never acted that Salazar was obviously doping athletes, Robert. Okay, but obviously he uh, that said he clearly broke some rules. Okay,
3: but what I'm saying is, to me, ignoring all this, to me, I think this is a good sign for Rob for one reason only, Rob. Rupp- is still obviously extremely motivated. I was wondering if Salazar going away was going to kill his motivation, if he would be down in the dumps, going through the motions, lost. No. He's obviously sought this coach out, and he's still all in, and that's all we need to know. If Rupp's all in, he's on the team.
0: I agree with that assessment because the assumption for me would have been he would have started working with Julian. So I find it kind of interesting that that didn't happen. Do you think Nike still wanted Julian on board, thought maybe there'd be too much heat if Rupp Julian just took over Rupp, so they said go somewhere else, or Galen on his own went there? But either way, the fact that he went to an outside coach, to me, is more positive for Galen for a variety of reasons. But one, if, especially if he chose this guy, it's like, yeah, I want to do this. Let's make this work. I still want to be the best.
3: Um, Maybe that's why people were reacting to it positively, because they think, oh, he's out of the Nike influence and he's on his own. Yeah, I guess it is interesting that he didn't go to Julian. I think Aves – I never thought about that. That does help him PR wise because he's kind of got a different coach. And be it though, there could be some ego involved there. Salazar, you know, Salazar and Shoemaker used to work together. Then they sort of separate. Salazar may not want Julian getting the credit. Um, you know, who 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 knows on that front?
2: Well, I, what I thought was interesting was in one of his, in his interview with Sarah Lodge Butler. Galen, he didn't come out and criticize Alberto, but he also said, you know, he thought one of the reasons he went to Mike Smith, I think, was just because he it would be sort of a change in stimulus. He would be getting some new, fresh ideas into his training, and he just said that there's always things that can be improved upon. And I that to me was a very interesting mindset because the Galen Rupp, the public knows, is he's sort of just. And Alberto Salazar programmed robot. He does whatever Alberto does. He follows the program. And by going to Mike Smith, he's actually showing Salazar's program, while it's resulted in a lot of success for him, isn't necessarily perfect, and that he still has things to learn. And that, to me, is interesting.
0: Yeah, fresh perspective can change things. I mean, Des Linden did that in her career. And I think we've sort of mentioned this. If this year doesn't result in... Sub eight for Evan Jager. I think he needs to try new coats just for that reason.
3: Well, speaking of Jager, folks, uh, I was going to go to him next. He, he's obviously—I think—he actually has a higher chance for a medal than Galen Rupp in the Olympics, despite missing last year. He's posted on EvanJager.com how he is effing amped for 2020. So he seems motivated. And I was thinking about it—missing last year, or basically most of last year, could be a positive for him. I, I think he's he's stuck in the same group for a long time. I'm like, look, if he doesn't do it amazing this year, he needs to switch it up. Just do something different. Why not? Um, everything has a shelf life. But the fact that he missed last year, is going to make him appreciate it more. And I, I think that it's a positive from performance standpoints, both for him and Galen Rupp moving forward.
2: I think you're holding Evan Jager to a ridiculous standard here. The guy has never broken eight minutes in his life. He's now 30 years old coming off an injury. And you say if he can't break eight minutes this year, he has to leave Jerry. I mean, I don't think he's going to break eight minutes, but I think he could run. Jerry could get 100% of his potential out of him. He still might not be able to break eight minutes, you know, based on the situation he's in. I just think that's an unfair bar to hold him to.
0: Robert had one good point. I feel that the year off maybe could be that outside stimulus to Jager. He's like, holy shit, I have to do this this year. So that could almost be like a coaching change. And I think Jerry's one of the best coaches in the very world. But I think sometimes, just sticking with the same stuff, if you're if you're not and your physical prowess is declining, you got to try something new. Why not for one year? But if this injury could have you know sometimes you miss what you don't have, right? We want what we don't have, and the year away, is like Jay could
2: just come out firing and maybe it's his best year ever. So
0: very interesting.
2: I mean, to me, I just don't. I think. I, you were talking about sub eight the time goals but to me it's like the only question is is Concesless Kipruto healthy because if that guy's healthy no one's beating him in a steeplechase at the at the Olympics.
0: I don't know, John, he's never broken eight himself either, either, which is crazy. So I don't think Concessless Kiprudo needs to change coaches, but...
2: That, I'm not saying, that's not what I'm saying at all. I know. I'm saying that the gold is pretty much off the table unless Evan can de- develop some insane kick, the likes we of which we still haven't seen from him, because no one outkicks Concessless Kiprudo, even a hobbled Concessless Kiprudo has kicked everyone's ass in the world the last couple of years.
0: yeah Yep. And the pressure sounds like it's getting to us on the podcast. Jager's all focused on the Olympics. Des is focused on the Olympics.
2: Des, she's been Des Linden for like a long time. Like what, 10 years now? Or something, eight years now? Well, I just then? said
0: Davila, didn't I? Her email, I had been emailing her, so that's in her email. Okay. Excuse me, Des Linden. Hey, it wouldn't be a podcast, right, without us saying someone's name wrong. or Oh,
2: me making a correction, yeah. Calling them by the wrong name, I mean. Yeah. But you did, I mean, you did accidentally say Galen Rupp's the best marathon in the world earlier in the podcast as well, so. But I corrected myself right now. Yeah, yeah, after. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Obviously, as we said earlier, everyone should go out and watch the Olympic trials and run the 5K half marathon or 10K the next day. But if the Olympic pressure is getting to people too much, we have another race that weekend you can go to. Can-Am XC Cup in beautiful Victoria, British Columbia. It's one of the coolest places in the world, I think. I love British Columbia, especially Victoria. It's March 1st. That will be in the show notes as well. It's the same course they're hoping to host the 2023 World XC Championships. So if you can't make it out to Atlanta, definitely make it out to BC. And they have a... A USA versus Canada, like you can run for Team USA because, like any for the Masters races, every five year division, if thirty Americans run and thirty Canadians run, they score that up and you're on the team. So no matter what, you better not, you know, if you're out there, you better not just jog it in because you'll be costing your country.
3: Okay, we, we've talked about Rupp's new coach. We have talked about Jager staying with Shoemaker. What we haven't talked about is a story that John broke, I think, last week just after we did the podcast, um, and that is Clayton Murphy. He has a new coach. He's returning to his college coach. John, how do you say his name? Lee Labatee. What do we think of this?
2: I, I don't have any major thoughts on it. I mean, he had a lot of success. Lee took him to an Olympic bronze medal. And it sounds like from what Clayton's agent, Paul Doyle, told me that Lee was still sort of had insight, would offer counsel to Clayton while he was out under Salazar. Clayton's run pretty well as a pro, I think. This will probably work out well. It's a guy he's had a lot of success under. I don't really see any major issues with this. It's it's somewhat, I guess it's somewhat interesting that he's not going with Julian, but also some, Julian coaches the world champion, and sometimes that's a benefit to train with a guy like that, and sometimes you don't want to train with one of your biggest rivals, and they're also different sort of runners. Donovan Brazier is a very speed-oriented guy. Clayton's more of a distance-oriented 800 runner. So yeah, I think that's a good move for Clayton. Are they
0: going to move to Ohio? Like, what's going to happen? Where's he going to be?
2: Yeah, he's going to spend... He'll have extended stints in, Ohio, in Akron, but they also still have a house in Portland, him and his wife. Speaking of his wife, his wife, Ariana Washington, she won
0: the hundred and two hundred and NCAAs as a freshman. Is that true? That is true, 2016.
2: And then... I feel like she won one more after that. She won an indoor title in either 2017 or 2018.
0: Is she still running?
2: I see no results from her last year. I don't think she runs anymore.
0: Interesting. And that's pretty crazy because she was like the best, one of the best, obviously, in the NCAs as a freshman.
2: She made the world's team in 2017.
0: That shows people like, you know, do what you love. And if you're really good in high school, you might not be really good in college. You're really good in college, you might be really good in pro. If you're good at 37, you may not be good at
2: 38. Rojo, do you like the move back to LeBeatty?
3: Yeah, I think it's a smart move. I mean, if it's not broke, why why change it? Why fix it? Um, of course, I'm telling Jagger to fix it when it's not broke there. But you know, I, I think that I, I wouldn't want to train with my with my big rival, Donovan Brazier. I wouldn't want to realize this guy's naturally way faster than me. I wouldn't want to have to be reminded of that every day. Um, I, I just think that obviously um, Murphy's extremely talented himself, but <laughs> I don't think he's Jonathan Frazier talented, and I wouldn't be reminded of that on a daily basis.
2: Okay, well, then you have to go in about five minutes. So before you leave, you are on, we had boots on the ground at the Armory for Mary Kane's return to racing. She ran 925 Thursday night at the Armory last week for 3,000 meters in a mixed gender race. You spoke to her briefly afterwards. What's your take?
0: My take? Wow. Um, she's still got a long way to go. She conceivably could make the Olympic trials, but she's definitely not making the team. Um, we kind of we started talking internally with what you know what was a good run. I think we said somewhere around, you know, kind of expected uh, above nine thirty. Be really concerned, and she was not what nine twenty
2: five. I wouldn't have been concerned by above nine nine thirty. I thought nine twenty five was a good effort for her. I just don't I don't have high expectations for her at this point in her career.
0: It's sort of interesting because what what what's the end goal she still talks like obviously the olympics and that sort of stuff is the goal i think that's really far-fetched but you got to believe that you got to dream that so her and her coach john hindwood were there and i was like mary do you want to do like a formal interview or can i just ask you a few questions she's like a few questions and so i was like you know what about the race and she's like oh it's like a high school race and she's kind of talking about all this mental stuff robert was talking about And I see how Robert gets critical of that because I'm like, she's like, all these people were in the way and I was running lane two a bunch. I'm thinking, well, the old Mary Kane, none of that stuff matters because you just lap everybody, you know, or kill everybody. So, and I haven't been on the track in a long time. She's sort of searching for all these answers. I'm just sort of like, well, she's not, you know, fit enough right now. And for me, the big question is, like, what's next? She's racing at the armory at the. Dr. Sander, Invitational next week. It's a good meet if everybody wants to go out, not go to Milrose because you got a- Aj Wilson and Raven Rogers, Olympic silver and bronze, world silver and bronze racing as well. So she's taking on Caitlin Toohey, the high school star. There, like, do we see improvement in Mary's times in a week? How much improvement? And then we sort of go because Mary is like the one. Other thing she said is like, look, this is the fastest I think she said, 800 and mile that I've run in ages, years, maybe like was in this race. So they haven't been doing track work. And some people in that's runner are convinced she's an eight hundred or fifteen hundred meter runner. So like once she starts doing more speed, a can she stay healthy? And where does that put her?
3: I I praise Mary guys for, for dreaming big last week because she doesn't want to wonder what if. But this is almost absurd. Like it, it's not going to end well. Come on, I, I mean I guess nine twenty three she would be third in the NCA right now, but. This Olympic talk is absurd. And did I go off on this? I I didn't get a chance to re-listen to the podcast last week, but I I wish I had. I I listened to about five minutes of her on some podcast and she was saying, I got this new mental thing and I A, B, C and D, E, F and positive. And now she's talking more mental. No, that's not the way it works. If you are in shape, you know how to run fast and she, she, she naturally, people naturally know how to run fast. They don't need some positive mental thing. I'm not saying there's no mental aspect to running. Um, Don't don't misunderstand me. But this, oh, she's searching for some mental thing that's going to make her 20 seconds faster. No, she's just not fit enough. And I don't know. I would be shocked if she makes the actual trials.
0: One thing that was very interesting was Kane ran the B men's race. And there was another woman in the race. And I'm like, wow, who's this other woman? And they were sort of racing. And I got to give the announcer at the Army credit because I wouldn't have known this. And they're like, "Oh, the other person's a former world junior champion." I'm like, "What?" And it was Nuhaim Bogali. She used to be Tazita Bogali of Ethiopia. She's got a 403 1500. She was the 2010 2010 world 1500 meter champion. So it's kind of crazy that, that this low key race and all these these things are great at the armory. Like I running into people I haven't seen in 20 years. There's like three running journalists from New York, all running races. It's these low key things, but it happens that Mary Kane and this former world junior 1500 meter champion are in the same race. One, it's kind of crazy. Two, it shows like there's no guarantees because I, I don't. I'm not thinking to Zita Bocali. Thinking she's going to be in Tokyo. And the other thing was just the, the the body types. Women have very different body types, and people have talked, you know, Kane that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, I think Kane has even said like, oh, she maybe needs to drop weight and all this other stuff. There's all these sensitive issues, but like bo looks fitter and i like, don't read too much into what i'm saying there but just like different body types none of these people are running anywhere close to what they ran so there's just so many different issues that go on to like what a teen phenom does when they're a pro but guys i gotta hop off for a second maybe i'll be back maybe not i hope we talk about the boston red sox cheating scandal i mean john are you okay red sox cheating Tom Brady's now my neighbor in Greenwich. I don't live in Greenwich. I live a couple of towns over, but like, oh my gosh, Robert, you guys, hopefully you can handle this on your own.
3: Let's go off topic, John. Well, Weldon leaves the podcast and, and talk sports for a while. John, it wasn't a good week for you or myself. I must admit my beloved Baltimore Ravens, the team I've supported for all of, you know, two months. We're out. Devastating loss. 10 point favorites. Here's the stat of the week that no one's talked about. The Baltimore Ravens are the only NFL team in the history of the NFL that had never lost as a 10-point favorite. They've lost. But, John, we already knew the New England Patriots were cheating, a cheating team and their dynasty was built on lies. But now the Boston Red Sox. The manager has been fired for cheating. And Houston, and we can only assume he won the 2018 World Series title by cheating for Boston. Tom Brady, Weldon has just hinted at it. He has sold his house in Brooklyn, Massachusetts, and moved to Connecticut. He's only a few houses down, from a few towns down from Weldon. When we heard that there was going to be a guest on this week's podcast, I thought to myself, could it possibly be my idol, Tom Brady? Maybe Weldon bumped into him in the Whole Foods. How cool would that have been, John? But how are you doing, John?
2: I'm okay. I've come to terms with the Patriots' exit. Because actually, you know, this probably won't win me any fans, but watching the ravens lose i was kind of like i, w- I was having fun because i don't like the rate as a patriots fan i don't like the ravens and i was watching their game and i'm like now i see why so many people hate the patriots because they love watching the, the a team that you don't like lose it's not as fun as watching a team you like win but it's kind of i'm like yeah, they were cocky or at least L. El- Thomas was kind of cocky, He criticized the Patriots, they couldn't tackle Derrick Henry, then they get stiff armed into oblivion. So I was like I kind of get it. And you know, that that, that was interesting, but as, as far as the Red Sox thing, I don't have a defense. I mean, I have a good friend from college who's a Yankees fan, and he's been like messaging me about it, and I really don't have much to fall back on here. It sounds pretty bad. Alex Cora was going to be banned by Rob Manfred, if he didn't get fired, and they said they mutually parted ways, him and the Red Sox yesterday, which is basically just code for he was going to get fired, uh, and they agreed to say it that way so it looks better in the paper. But I don't know. I guess my only defense would be I have three. We have three other World Series titles since 2004 to fall back on, and uh, not many other teams can say that. John,
3: this news and. and- you know, people who may not be American visitors, it came out that the Houston Astros, who won the 2017 World Series title, they had illegally used a video camera to figure out which pitches were coming, and the people were banging on a tunnel, making a trash can, making sounds to, so that some of the players would know what pitch was coming. Um, And the now Red Sox manager who took over for the Red Sox the next year was involved in it was one of the masterminds behind this game. So we can only assume he also may have done it in Boston. Well, no,
2: there's no assumption there, Robert. It's already a story out that they used the video room to do something similar. They had a cheating scheme in place. And a lot of people were saying, AJ Hinch, the Astros manager, was banned for one year. They were thinking Alex Cora was going to be banned for maybe two years or more because... Not only was he part of the process in Houston, he also brought the cheating and cheated during the Red Sox World Series championship year of 2018. Okay, good to hear.
3: To me, this is very interesting, and it reminds me very much of, in some ways, of the Alberto Salazar scandal.
2: Take a drink. If you're uh, anyone playing Let's Run podcast drinking game, that's our Salazar. Me- I think we already mentioned him before, but there's a Salazar mention for you.
1: When they turn- Seems like the wind might be in their face. It's Celazar, Celazar, Salazar.
3: So in the sense of, first of all, there were some players who thought it's fascinating to me. AJ Hinch supposedly was not a fan of this. He's the manager of the Houston Astros, was not a fan of this. And he supposedly broke the TV monitor twice, but he didn't actually stop it. So Major League Baseball is like, look, he's the head of the team. He should have been held responsible. So it's interesting to me. Now he did laugh when a reporter asked him about it, so I kind of like felt like he was lying. He's like, oh that's ridiculous when he did know that it had happened. But it's weird that someone who sort of wasn't a fan of it gets the, the brunt of the punishment. But I also read some of the players didn't like it. They found it distracting. Act like So it may not have even worked. Now, other people like, of course it worked if you know what pitch is coming. But some players found out like, I'd rather just focus on the pitch and not worry about what I, if I can hear this guy banging on the trash can. That reminded me of L-Carnitine. Salazar was obsessed with L-Carnitine. There's actually no proof that it actually really works. But it doesn't matter if it works or not. You shouldn't be doing this. So, you know, that aspect of it sort of is interesting. But to me, I really found this very, very depressing. The older I get as an adult, it's like, my God, what isn't corrupt? People are cheating and stealing at everything.
2: Yeah, Robert, I find your Salazar comparison tenuous at best. I think that's just a way to shoehorn Alberto into this. But speaking of what we were just talking about, getting depressed, Wilson kept saying... Last week, it comes out that he has been suspended provisionally for whereabouts violations and tampering violations. We don't have the full details on this story. But this guy, aside from Elliot Kipchoge, he was the best marathoner of the 2010s and had a, re- you know, apart from, Kip- until Kipchoge came along or apart from Kipchoge's accomplishments, has a realistic argument as the best marathoner of all time. He's run sub-204 four times. Only Kipchoge's has done that. He's won five majors including London twice. He has an Olympic bronze medal. This guy is one of the best marathoners ever and then it comes out, yeah, he's been banned and I guess I think it's important to wait until we see the whole case to see exactly what he did or didn't do but it's not a good look for the sport. when so he, This is the biggest male marathoner in history to be banned.
3: No, John, it's not. I, I would like to see the facts, but it's it's an incredibly depressing story. And, and this is the question I have, John, I, and I don't even know the answers. Honestly, I, I didn't do a lot of prep work for this week's show. I actually moved into a new office to become more productive. been doing that on Monday and Tuesday instead of preparing for this podcast. But, John, I, I think I know a few of these answers. I'll ask you since you're the man who knows all the knowledge. To me, my immediate question is, okay, what group is he in? Who's he trained with?
2: Well, he used to train with Joffrey Mutai and Dennis Kamedo. I think he sort of started his own group recently, as those guys fell fell off.
3: Okay, that's what I thought the answer was going to be, and that's incredibly depressing. Because who was the best marathoner before Kipsang? It was Jeffrey Mutai, two hundred three hundred two, whatever he ran in the course record holder in Boston and New York, and just he was on fire there for about two years. So that raises, uh, you know, again. You know, some people claim that, oh, not all of the NLP was doping. Just part of the NLP was doping if they were doping. So it doesn't mean that if you're in a group that everyone was doping. But it raises major, major red flags to me there about Jeffrey Mutai's entire career. Because the what I say consistently, if something seems too good to be true, it normally is. And so and now I have huge red flags on, on, on Mutai. And then Kometo, I mean, behind the scenes, John, let's just admit it. People always thought if there was one guy you had to think, who's a doper who came out of nowhere Very quickly, ran a world record. I think a lot of people would have said Dennis Cometo again. There's no proof, there's no allegations that he's ever been on drugs. But I think people already had a lot of people behind the scenes had questions about Cometto. So now it's kind of like the Rosa group. Like you just associate, okay, there's you know, there were so many Rosa marathoners banned, maybe this whole new group. Also, who was his agent? Do
2: we know who his agent was, John Gerard Van Deveen? Is the agent, he's he's the head of the agency.
3: So. Well, I don't know what that means, but
2: well, it's Vilar Sports. Like I'm not sure he might have. I think Ariane vacard also worked with uh, Kip saying it might have been his. I'm not sure if he was his personal agent or not. But Gerard Van Der Veen runs Vilar Sports, which is the agency that represents Kip saying.
3: Although I'm looking at Kimeto's times here, I don't know why he was that suspicious for so many people, John. Because I'd heard that from somebody, but I'm looking at his results: 2012 second in Berlin, 2013 first in Tokyo first in Chicago, 204.16, 206.50, 203.45. Then he DNF Boston in 2014. Then he ran the world record in in Berlin. So he did run. It wasn't like he was inconsistent. He ran four incredible marathons out of five and then actually followed up with the third place in London. So five of his first six marathons were amazing. But
2: that was the the suspicious part is he went from this farmer who – Jeffrey Mutai saw, or Wilson saying one of them saw him running on the side of the road to, within a couple of years, breaking the world record. I mean, his first race on Tillis de Paja is on October of 2011, and less than one year later, he's winning the Berlin Marathon, which is just, you very rarely see, oh, sorry, second at the Berlin Marathon, he's right behind Mutai, and they basically cross together. I mean, you don't really see people come out of nowhere that, that, to that high a level that quickly.
3: Yes, I guess that that part of it is shocking. And then afterwards, he sort of fell off the map. DNF, DNF, two eleven fourteen in forty four in, in London. DNF, 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 two fourteen in Shanghai, and another DNF. I mean, it, as good as he came out of nowhere, was amazing for about five races, and then went basically back into Bolivian.
2: But, but, but where's Bolivian, Robert?
3: What was I supposed to say, John?
2: Oblivion. Sorry, it's just like it was like a cross between Bolivia and oblivion. And I, I oh, I thought I said very it, funny.
3: With an O, right? Oblivion. Spoonerism. Anyway, you know, my argument would be there would be like, I don't know if I was going to defend him. Is well, if he was on drugs, if that was explaining his rapid rise, then why wouldn't he stay on them? Why would that explain his his rapid fall? Maybe he was just someone that was injury prone, or maybe he once he made a lot of money, he had trouble focusing. I don't know. But again, it's just depressing. Yet another big name busted, popped you know, for drugs. So, and, and then we also, John, I, I think that you've been reading this pace. So I don't think we have anything up on Let's Run. The first sanction in the Jama-Aden case has come out.
2: Well, this one, I mean, this sanction came out years ago and it's it was uh, It was upheld by CAS. I'll get to that in a second. Just one other thing, Wilson Kipp saying, bronze medal in the 2012 Olympics. Do you remember who was fourth in that race, Robert? No. It was an American by the name of Meb Flesky. So... Just interesting to think about, but the yeah. So this this CAS thing uh, with Bala, yeah. Th- this odd thing we bring it up every so often on the podcast because it's insane that they just raided this hotel, found EPO, and there's essentially the only person who's been sanctioned related to this is Musaibala, who's a Qatari 800 meter runner. And if you, reading through the de- the decision. It was crazy because the Qatar, he was initially banned by World Athletics, which is IAAF at the time. And then the Qatari Athletic Federation, he appealed to them and they just cleared him. They were like, oh, actually, yeah, we, we believe his story. And the IAAF's like, what the hell? We found like bottles of EPO in this guy's room. We have him essentially dead to rights. How can you say? Like, he didn't, do, he didn't do it. So they appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. This whole thing, the raid was back in June 2016. It's taken a while to adjudicate. But the CAS finally, they released its decision. They upheld the initial ban. And you read some of the details. They had Spanish police outside this hotel in Sabadell, Spain, which is where Arden had his training camp, and Consejo de Barber, among others, was there at the time. And... Arden every night would go out and he would walk around. He would walk like up to 200 meters away from the hotel, disposing of syringes and breaking them into pieces. Just incredibly ske- sketchy behavior. And like Barlow would go outside and they essentially said, like, Bala, it sounded like he knew that he was being surveilled because he would walk in an uneven manner or change up the paces or do all the. They would look around constantly. And they essentially said he was. Behaving so erratically that they couldn't tail him without being discovered. So Bala would then go out, and then they didn't know what he did, but they kind of assumed he would throw stuff away. And then they raid his room, and they find doping materials. And he says, "Oh, first he says that wasn't his room, but it actually was his room. And then he said it was his roommate's suitcase, even though he had pictures of himself in the suit in the bag. It was it was actually they called it the Nike bag because it was it was a Nike bag, and that was sort of what they kept referring to it in the case. But the whole thing is crazy." And yet he's the only one who's been sanctioned. They still haven't been able to sanction Jama Aden for any of this.
3: But John, again, th- this gets me to the basic question. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if Jama Arden's found, if they found EPO in those syringes that he was disposing of, he would be banned, right? Because a coach can't have forbidden substances.
2: Right. And they essentially said that they couldn't, the syringes, because they had been broken apart and like laid out to the elements that they couldn't, they couldn't always tell what had been in the syringes that jama Arden was using. Because it wasn't just... They had a lot of other substances as well. Some of them may have been legal, but some of them not legal in Spain, maybe... You know, there was a bunch of different substances that he was injecting, and it might have been that the one, the EPO, the injections, those syringes weren't jammed. And Well,
3: in some ways, that vindicates odd, I don't know. I mean, what else can you do besides have a police, unless the police are inept, follow him, watch him dump stuff in the dumpster, and you can't prove what substance it is? I mean, that's a you problem, not a he problem. Well,
2: okay, but here's my question. If you're disposing of a legal substance, why would you walk to a trash can 200 meters away from your hotel to throw it away? Why not just throw it away in the trash can in your room, Robert? That's, that, that behavior is suspicious as hell. Clearly, he has something to hide. Well,
3: I, um, well, yeah, but wouldn't you be more likely to be seen that you're walking out throwing it away? I don't know. That's a good point. Just, just none of it makes sense. It just shows you how hard the anti-doping is. Like, we have a police raid. We, we assume, based on this guy's times, some of the athletes he's running, that they're doped. But then...
2: And no one was... He was tested multiple times that month, past them. No, no one in that group t- failed a test during that time. Am I mean, just to believe that the CPO went unused? Like, no, it, it's just, it, yeah, like you said, it shows you how hard, it's why so many of these new cases that are being processed have to go based on intelligence-driven, and it, it's just very hard to actually catch someone by a positive test. You need to sort of know more than that.
3: Well, I imagine we'll be hearing more of that in, in the months and years to come, John, so this podcast has been going on for a long time. We've got the Houston half. Do we need to talk about that? Or do we want to talk some more about the potential ban of the Vaporfly? Or should we wait till a little bit more information comes? Because I imagine that news is actually going to drop what's going to happen in the next week or so.
2: Yeah, let's maybe hold off. We talked to Des a little bit about the Vaporfly stuff, and we don't know everything that's going to go on. Plus, we talk about the Vaporflies every week, so people are probably tired about it at this point. How about this, Robert? Someone set a world record last week, and we're, well, what? An hour and a half into the show, we haven't mentioned anything about Ronex Kipruto running 2624 on the streets of Valencia for ten thousand for ten K on the roads, and he didn't do it wearing the vapor flies? How are we not freaking out about this? 2624, the world record on the track is 2617. Only Haile G and Kennedy Bekele have run faster than that on the track. This is a phenomenal performance, no?
3: Yes. And I think some people are gonna be like, oh, you know, this is a a, a a bad day for Rojo because somebody ran fast, not in the vapor flies. This doesn't prove anything to me in terms of the Vaporfly effectiveness. I think the other companies are imitating the, the technology now. And to me, it, this is actually proof of, 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 of the new technology and how well it works. I think someone on the message board said it best. I think now that the road running is actually faster than the track running because of the, of the technology of the shoes. Um, I mean, Caputo is amazing. Then he runs super fast in Central Park one year, like 27 flat?
2: Yeah, like 27.08, I think. And remember, also Stockholm last year, the Diamond League, terrible conditions. He soloed a twenty six fifty. He then he got the bronze medal at, at Worlds. So, I mean, I I'm mean, very been, I'd be very interested to see if they actually get a world record attempt up for him on the track. How close he could come to twenty six seventeen, and then what shoes would he wear? Would he wear his flats, or would he actually go with spikes?
3: Yeah, I mean, he's a big, big talent. Twenty years just turned twenty on October twelfth. You know, this to me. Why is why I love the 10,000. I think it's going to be fascinating. You're going to have um, guy You're going to have Farah. You're going to have Capruto. Kajelcha. K- Kajelcha's in there. I mean, it's really going to be a, right there. One of those names I'll obviously
2: doesn't want to medal. Yeah. No, that's, that's going to be one of the best races of the Olympics. I'm still a Cheptegai guy at this point because no one's really beaten him recently. But uh, that should be a phenomenal event.
3: But I got a text from a buddy after this world record, and he's like, he must listen to the podcast. He's like, can we stop hearing about the shoes now? I said, well, I, I, again, it's not like, I'm not saying it's just the Nike shoe. In 2016, it just was Nike. Now it's everybody's shoes. And I think it's just, it's sort of, we don't know what to accept as like an amazing time anymore because I think everything has gotten significantly faster than it used to be. Um, because of technology. You know, like, oh, this is proves Rojo's wrong. No, it's the opposite. Like, all of a sudden, these Americans that were running 211, 214 2, 2, are running 209 to 212. So I, I just think that everybody's running faster. You know, we've always wanted faster shoes. We've got them. Um, but it's just it's sort of hard to put things a little bit in, in historical perspective. But I do think there's no doubt that he is an all-time talent. Um, and
2: Well, Robert, we... We were talk. We said we wouldn't talk about the shoes, but we kind of did. And I- now that we- we're talking about it, I actually think there's an interesting discussion to be had. I had I was talking on. I had a back and forth on Twitter with Dan Lelo, who's an an agent in the sport, and it was essentially like if they ban the the flies, the next percent. If they ban the version that Kipchoge broke his world record in, or that you know uh, Bridget Kosgei broke her world record in, should those world records be allowed to stand? Because David Monty pointed out to me today, Bridget, Will, Bridget Cosguy's world record still hasn't been ratified officially by World Athletics, and that took place three months ago. Would you be in favor of wiping the record books of these times? Like, should these records be stripped because they were set in shoes that may not be allowed? Or should they be allowed to stand and potentially stand for 20 or 30 years because no one can approach that technology?
3: No, I think if you, if you ban the technology, you have to erase the records.
2: I kind of disagreed. I think they were legal at the time. Like, Casa Semenya's times, she's banned, but her times is still allowed to stand.
3: Well, I certainly don't think what happened in 2016 should be allowed to stand. Those weren't legal shoes at the time. They just didn't enforce the rules. Yeah,
2: we know that. We know that. But the, the, the other thing is, I'd just sort of be interested, say World Athletics does ban a version of the Vaporfly. And first of all, they need to say which version they're banning. They have to... Ex- it's, they're not going to come out and say, we're banning this shoe specifically. They're going to say, here are the limits we're imposing on shoes, and every shoe has to reach that meet those limits. And I guess what I'm interested in is if they do come out with that, where are they going to be resetting the clock to? Because you could say certain shoes are legal, and then Nike might come out and create essentially their version of a Vaporfly that actually now fits these, this criteria, and that still may be way faster than whatever we had in the past, but not maybe not quite as fast as the Alpha Fly maybe. It's possible with that sort of technology, it could, they could approach the technology we have now within the limits and people might be able to break these records. So I, I just think it's, there's still a lot of unknowns as to what exactly that effect the rule will have.
3: Yeah, I, I, I just, I don't know. I just hope that when we start the Olympic Marathon, well, even London Marathon, to be honest. I hope that everybody... It's not the person who has the best shoe that wins the race. It's the best runner that wins the race.
2: Yeah, I think that's what we all want. Or they win because of the best shoe. Alright, we're almost at two hours, but let's... One quick thing, you did mention London. I think that's an interesting topic to discuss as well. Because they came out with the elite fields. And they're, they're very strong, as usual. But on the men's side, there's no elite... There's a, there's Eli Kipchoge, there's no Kenny Spichelli yet. And... You know, Bekele has entered races late, you know, but Berlin lost full when he ran 201. He was a late entrant into that race, so it doesn't mean that he can't come out there and contend, but right now we've got Elliot Kipchoge, Mozanet Garamu, who was second last year in 202.55, Mule wasahoon who was third last year, Tamarat Tola, Shira Katata, Marius Kipsaram, Kipser, uh, you know... You've got some good runners but there's no Bekele Kipchoge showdown yet which is what I think the whole running world wanted. Do you think that Bekele will run this or do you think, you know, we're going to have to wait till Sapporo or maybe even later for it?
3: I assume he would run it if he's healthy. Where else is he going to go?
2: He could run Tokyo or Boston, but I assumed he would run it as well.
3: One thing that again, you know, we, can I just go off on athletics Kenya? I read, I think, last week that they're going to be announcing their marathon team soon. How stupid is that, John? So they can give the athletes more time. The athletes are still going to run spring marathons. These guys want the paydays. So, you know, if you were going to name the team now and say they have to skip a spring marathon, I can understand it. If you're not, there's no reason not to let them run the spring marathons, get as much information, figure out who's running well, who's not. I mean, why wouldn't you want to wait as late as possible unless you're going to mandate that they skip a spring marathon, which is going to go over well with them you know, in terms of their financial earning capabilities. So this is, yet again, a dumb decision by an athletic governing body. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about dumb decisions. Anyone at USATF, are you still listening? Remember, we're only going to have 30 people in the USATF 1500 at the Olympic trials. We're going to have three rounds. No. You need to go to at least 36, preferably 48. I mean, it's just, uh, we have corruption throughout the world, cheating all the time. If you're that bureaucrats. John, I'm just, I'm depressed as we start 2020.
2: Yeah, well, the Athletics Kenya thing, it's... If there's an interpretation, some of the news articles that came out that you could say they're only naming a preliminary list, they're not naming the full team, but I've also heard the full team might have already been decided on and they're just waiting to announce it. So, I agree, I think it would be foolish not to use the spring marathons as a form of information for selecting the team, but at the same time, in 2016, remember, in 2016, they essentially just ignored everything anyone had done before. Mary Katani had a bad marathon in the spring in London, even though she had won New York. She'd been totally dominant. She was the world's best bar- best marathoner before that. They left her off the team because of that one race. Then she comes out and wins New York by like three minutes. You know, clearly would have been a factor at the Olympics. You kind of got to wonder how much the shoe companies come into this too. With you know, are they just picking, going to pick Nike athletes? Did Katani, being an Adidas athlete, have anything to do with it? The other thing with USATF, how about can we find out relatively soon how the Olympic trials are going to work, how they're going to be picking the team on the track? Because I know we were complaining for a while that we didn't know how, they were, how they're going to pick the marathon team. And that was a little bit more pressing because people had to actually go out and sign up for marathons. And you know, you go to sign up for a marathon well ahead of time. But people are going to be starting to plan out their track seasons and they need to know, do I need to hit these super hard Olympic standards or can I is it not as big a concern? Is it just more important for me to finish top three at the trial? So people need to sort of start playing their seasons. And right now we still don't know how the qualifying for Tokyo is going to work.
3: Since we're talking about Tokyo and, and Kenya, John, in terms of the, of, of the Kenyan team, if I'm picking the team right now, you have to go with Toronto. We ranked number one in the world. You have to go with Kipchoge. I mean, obviously we had him at number three, but you know, he's the best marathon in the world. But really the only question then is sort of who's in the third spot. Do you go with the camera or, or maybe Titus Akiru, who we had, you know, they were ranked seventh and the eighth in the world in our men's rankings. Akiru ran Milan in 204.46 and Honolulu in 208 flat. I mean, I I just think it's hard to pick the the third spot right now.
2: That's why you leave the spring marathon open. and You make the decision after that.
3: For the women, obviously you'd have Kip. I think, again, the first two spots are obvious. Bridget Guy and Bruce I mean, she was first at Dubai and Worlds. Another one set the world record holder and won London. So, I mean, (laughs) that's an easy one. And then the question is, who would be third? Um, And I think at this point, um, you could go with Vivian Chariot. Again, it's the same thing as the men's side. The seventh and eighth person in our world rankings from last year. Vivian Chariot was seventh. She was second in London and fourth in Valencia. She ran 220 and 218. Or do you go with the New York champion, Joseline Chepkoska, who won New York in 222? And then, of course, don't forget Mary Catani. So, again I, again, I just think I, I would rather have more information when I'm making that third pick right now.
2: And guess what? Chariot and Chep Kosguy are racing each other in London. So you can kind of use that as a tiebreaker. Mary Catani, not listed on the elite field in London. She's never run another spring marathon. So that's also an interesting development. Uh, but I, I, th- I would sort of say Chariot sort of has the ins- inside track because – she ran what was she ran still ran two nineteen in Valencia last fall, even though she was not healthy. She had a very abbreviated build up coming off that race. Fifty two, sorry, two eighteen or two nineteen, Robert. Two eighteen fifty 52 So she still ran two eighteen. Great, right, that's a very fast horse, and she was only fourth in that race, I believe. But you you look at what she's accomplished before winning London in twenty eighteen. She was the second in. London in 2019, only behind Bridget Kosgi is the world's best marathoner. I think when she's healthy and she has a full build-up, Cherryot probably is on that team, especially since Katani's sort of declining. But I think we got to wait till see how both of them handle the spring before you make a final decision. But maybe Athletics Kenya has already made that decision. But
3: you're ignoring Jeb Jebkosgi.
2: Oh yeah, sorry. You got to factor her in as well. Yeah, if she obviously if she wins New York and then she like finishes, she's close to Kosgi in London or wins London or something like that. You got to you got to take her. So she, she's obviously a factor too.
3: Yeah. Let's just be uh, picking this stuff. is So it, it, I'm glad in America, we don't, we don't pick teams because it, you know, you don't let biases of, you know, who their sponsor is or who your husband works for. or Any of these things, you know, impact your decision. So it um, should be interesting. We're going to be talking lots of doping and lots of marathons throughout all of 2020.
2: All right. I think that's a good spot to end it. Houston half this weekend. That's on Sunday morning. Uh, should be available to stream. We'll have a streaming page up uh, with links to that soon. But you know, it's like we said, Sarah Hall and Molly Huddle, those are sort of, and then Jared Ward, Shadow at b on the men's side are some of the guys. And there's a lot, there's a lot of people faster than them as well. The Americans probably aren't going to be winning these races, but we're sort of focused because the trials are so soon. And this is a big race before it. It's also citizen, r- regular runners, this is the last chance the qualifying window for the trials closes this weekend. So it's pretty much there's going to be a lot of people out there and vaporflies trying to get that trials qualifier in Houston. And good luck to you if you're listening to the podcast.
3: I don't know if it will be vaporflies. I don't know if he's still running, but my former Cornell runner, Sage Kennedy, ultramarathon star. Good luck if you're doing it this weekend. And folks, we should have mentioned this throughout the podcast much more. But if you're still listening, do what Des Linden did. And tip Jonathan Joel. She set the bar. Apparently the maximum tip allowed. Really, this should be the minimum tip. $1 per week, $50 a year. She says it's well worth it, John.
2: Yeah, why not set up, set up a recurring tip? That's an option, you know, and then you just set it and forget it.
3: $50 a a, month, a year recurring should be, is what they should do. I don't know if you can do that. I think that you can
2: do just, like $1 a week or like four, five, yeah. $4 a month. Set it up and then just... Yeah, dollar a week seems less painful. So, Johnny, you now have female admirers,
3: but now you have female admirers that are paying for it. Even a married woman—impressive.
2: It's a strange way of phrasing it, Robert. I think she's just a fan of the show, and we can leave it at that, folks. All right. Until next week, everyone.